Radio Mano Papachango. David Steinberg is uh, an expert on sexuality. He's a photographer. He's an author. The book we're talking about today is uh, called This Thing We Call Sex, A Radically Sensible Look at Sex in America. As you'll hear, I came across David's work years ago in the 90s, I believe, when I was living in San Francisco. And um, even then, before I was... uh, focused on sexuality as a an endeavor a scholarly endeavor whatever it is that I've been doing um I found his writing to be very interesting funny sane radically sane radically sensible as he puts it uh he's got a couple of other books um that he gave me when he was here to record this podcast Divas of San Francisco Portraits of Transsexual Women and uh, Erotic by Nature, which is a beautiful, large-format photography book. The subtitle is A Celebration of Life, of Love, and of Our Wonderful Bodies. Um, And this is uh, work that David and I talk about a bit in the podcast, where he's been, for years, going around the country, um, and possibly the world, I'm not sure, but uh, photographing couples in their private intimacy, almost like a National Geographic photographer who tries to be as unobtrusive as possible wearing those all-white suits with the white camera so the polar bears won't notice. I'm not sure David would think of himself that way, but it just occurs to me that that's uh, sort of what he's doing with his photography. He's, It's not uh, staged. He's trying to capture people as they really are with one another, and the photographs are are really beautiful. Um, they're not just erotic. They're intimate in a way that uh, sort of transcends eroticism. I'd recommend all these books, um, but Erotic by Nature would be a particularly nice gift if you have a friend who is interested in eroticism, interested in sexuality, um, but turned off by the commercialization and the what is ultimately a very uh, sex-negative and destructive attitude towards sexuality, which is if you're not young and firm and sexy and beautiful and, well, I I misused the word sexy there. See, look at that. I fall for it too. If you're not young and beautiful and firm and cut and six-pack and a big dick and nice tits and blah, 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 then you're not sexy. If you don't buy that, Um, but you're still interested in seeing sexuality through the eyes of someone who doesn't buy it either, then David's your man. So I finally got back in the saddle of the Toma podcast this week. I released, uh, I think, the 14th episode of that series. It's in the same RSS feed as this podcast is, so it may have appeared in iTunes or whatever um, podcast app you use. Uh, I try to keep them separate because I'm sensitive to the fact that not everybody's interested in that. Um, most Many people just want to hear the interviews and the conversations I have on Tangentially Speaking. So if that's you, just ignore anything that comes up, TOMA, T-O-M-A, which stands for Talking Out My Ass. 
because those are just uh, my recollections of my wayward youth traveling around. Uh, right now I'm in India. The last episode was about Srinagar, Ladakh, Kashmir, and a crazy bus ride on the deluxe video coach back down to Delhi. Uh, from there, we're going to be going to uh, Pushkar, I think, is going to be the next episode. Not sure whether I'll get to Jaisalmer in that episode. I think Pushkar deserves its own episode. And then we'll go out to Jaisalmer, which is this amazing sandstone fortress in the desert near the border with Pakistan. And then I'm not sure. Then probably up to Nepal. I'm not sure if there. I have to, you know, search my memories if there were. Oh, Varanasi. Yeah, the Varanasi's before Nepal. So anyway, I'm just sort of you know retracing some of the the uh, the roads I took way back when in the mid '80s. At this point, and uh, so if you're interested in that, check out Toma. If you're not, just delete it, skip it. Don't worry about it. Um, thanks for all the uh, support for the podcast. People are making donations. People are signing up for uh, to support the podcast on fundwhatyoulove.com. I really appreciate everything, anything you do to support the podcast. People are also um, buying stuff through Amazon, which is really cool. So we get a few percentage points off uh, whatever you spend at Amazon. doesn't cost you anything extra. So that's wonderful. It's always wonderful to have support for the podcast. Uh, when I finish this book... God, how many time, how many sentences have begun with that phrase in the last year? When I finish this book, um, I'm not sure what I'm going to do. I'm thinking, first of all, I'm not going to write anything for a while. I'm going to uh, chill out. Cassie and I are moving back to Spain. We're probably going to be based in the Canary Islands. And uh, so I'm just going to chill for a while. Uh, we've got some travel we want to do. But I'm thinking maybe uh, step up the podcast to twice a week. Um, once I'm not, you know, freaking out because of this book hanging over me, uh, cause I really enjoy this. I really enjoy communicating with you, hearing from you. Um, and, uh, just the, it blows my mind. The fact that, that this is reaching so many people in so many remote corners of the earth. So, uh, yeah, we'll see how it goes, but that's, that's what I've got in mind. And then when I feel like writing again, I think what I'm going to try to write some fiction. I've, I've been thinking about writing, uh, an erotic novel set in prehistory. I think I may have mentioned that in an earlier episode, um, but it seems apropos since uh, we're talking to David in this one. Yeah, like Fifty Shades of Grey meets Clan of the Cave Bear sort of thing. If anyone is uh, perfectly situated to write a book like that, it's got to be me. One of the reasons, honestly, between you and me, that um, I'm not making as much progress on the book as I as I would like is that the research is heartbreaking. I mean, taking a close look at what civilization really is, is heartbreaking. And a lot of times I feel like, you know, like a German in 1939 or 40 uh, coming to the realization or articulating the realization of just how fucked up my people are. Now, when I say my people, I mean people. And when I say people, I mean civilization, because it's not that people are bad. It's that civilization gets us into a situation where our net effect on the planet is akin to the fucking devastating cancer. I mean, for example, I've been reading about the Warani people in the upper Amazon. They live in an area 
in Ecuador called the Oriente. It's probably the richest place in the world, biologically speaking. And a single research stage, station up there, observers have recorded 490 species of birds, which is two-thirds as many species of birds that are found in the continental United States. That's in one little research station. It's an amazing place. Um, but there's oil under the ground. And so for the last 20 or 30 years, oil companies have been in there destroying this place, dumping their toxic sludge into the streams and rivers. People, the cancer rates are through the roof of people who 30, 40 years ago were fishing out of the rivers, were drinking out of the rivers, were bathing in those rivers. Now they come out and the kids have skin lesions and they've got cancers of all sorts. And it's just fucking horrible. And all the oil in the Oriente, all the oil that they're pumping out of there, destroying cultures, destroying lives, destroying priceless ecological areas will supply the equivalent of 13 days of energy use for the United States. There's something really wrong with that. So anyway, I can't deal with it for more than a few hours a day. Now, hopefully the book won't be as depressing to read as it is to write, but, uh, cause no one's going to buy the damn thing if it is, but you know, I, I really think it's time to take a close look at what we're doing, not even a close look to take a, you know, step back and take a global macro look and say, what the fuck, what the fuck are we doing? This is just insane. Anyway, uh, if you'd like to read about the situation, um, and also there are two articles that were written in the New Yorker in the, in the nineties. The first one was in 90. Let's see. Let's see, when was this? I've got it right in front of me here. Uh, 93 and then in 94 by Joe Kane, K-A-N-E. And they're both available online. The first one's called With Spears from All Sides. And the second one is called Moy, M-O-I, Goes to Washington. And uh, Joe Kane, very interesting guy. He wrote a book called Savages. Um which recounts his experience living with the Warani and getting to know the people there and uh, learning the language and all that and um, and sort of helping them try to defend themselves against this onslaught of Texaco and Conoco and all these other oil companies, um, you know, obviously in collusion with the Ecuadorian government. And at one point, one of the people, one of the sort of leaders of the Warani. Now, I use the word leaders in quotation marks because they're foragers and foragers as such don't really have leaders, but they uh, got together and, and essentially elected this guy to represent them. And uh, he went to Washington. And so the second article called Moy Goes to Washington is where Joe um, sort of shepherds him around Washington and New York during his visit. It's, you know, it's one of those things that's sort of simultaneously really charming and funny you know, he, he, he doesn't fig- he doesn't know how to use the shower. So he ends up taking a shower with only hot water. And then he wants to change rooms to try to get a room that has cold water and all this, you know, stuff that you've seen before about people kind of dealing with um, modernity for the first time. 
Um, but then there are also just heartbreaking things like I'll read this is from uh, the second article. Moy goes to Washington. They're on the train going from Washington up to New York. And Kane says, um, Moy found the Chesapeake Bay beautiful and added its name to a list he was keeping of cities and towns. Moy has a little notebook where he takes notes on things he sees. After we entered the industrial corridor north of Delaware, however, his face lost its glow. We passed a field of giant tanks used for storing chemicals. To Moy, they looked exactly like the tanks the company uses to store oil. For a long time, he didn't say a word. Then he asked, John Kane, are there Indians here? No. Were there Indians here before the company came? Yes, there were Indians everywhere. Were they killed? Yes. All of them? Almost. That guy's looking at his future. Right? And he's one of the last the last survivors. And that was written in ninety four. So he's probably gone by now too. So between that shit and Fukushima still spewing tons and hundreds of tons of radioactive water into the Pacific Ocean every day, which nobody really seems to be talking about or thinking about because you can't see it. Very interesting. And then there was this article in the New Yorker this week about um, the huge earthquake that's coming to Oregon soon. Uh, We're already overdue for it, statistically speaking, and it's going to be massive. It's going to be huge. So anyway, kind of heavy, but it's a nice day out and there are pretty girls walking down the street. So I guess I shouldn't be complaining. I hope you enjoy this interview, this conversation I had with David. We're sitting in the park, Lakehurst Park in Portland, for those of you who know it. Uh, He's a very special guy. And I'd really encourage you to pick up a copy of one or all of his books if you get a chance. This thing we called Sex is a look back at David's career um, and uh, sort of a survey of his thoughts on sexuality over the years. He's a wonderful guy. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Now, I'm going to play you out with uh, a song, a beautiful song, called Don't Leave Your Life Too Long. It was sent to me by uh, sort of a correspondent I've been keeping in touch with for a while now, Nathan West, who listens to the podcast when he can. Right now, he's in the Peruvian jungle. He's studying, I think, anthropology at Cambridge. And uh, we've been in touch probably for over a year now. Anyway, he sent me this. I'll read you what he said. Uh, I have a mate, Kim Churchill. I've been lucky enough to tour with Kim all around Canada and then through England with Billy Bragg. Kim is a young guy, trained as a classical guitarist from a young age. And although he's a really smart kid, he decided to ditch the university after high school, buy a van, pack his surfboard up, and go busk for money. Busking led to fuel, food, and cash, which led to pub gigs, which led to being signed to a record contract. He became big in Canada and uh, recently hit the big time in Australia, which is great. Very cool. Uh, Knowing him since his busking days and briefly having the odd tour with him along the way, it's been great to see such a poetic and authentic talent succeed. So I agree. He's uh, sent along a few songs with Kim and his management's permission to use them. I think you'll really enjoy this. It's called Don't Leave Your Life Too Long.
I was walking one day through the big lights, wondering when the world became so tired. Bottles of vodka flashed as a Coca-Cola sign shone like moonlight. And I wondered when the world became so wild. Even the clearing of the streets, it was all tiled. And in the corner stood a tree in a cage. In the screen on the side of a skyscraper stood a war child nestled in amongst the stocks, the shares, and the sports scores of the day. I thought of dogs. You leave your life too long. It's gone before it's done. If you hide away. I was traveling one day to find a small town. For it heard that it was far enough away. Arrived late in the night and there was no sound. I looked forward to the breaking of the day. And with the sunrise, I headed for the ocean. For it's where I find the cleanest air to breathe. And every road down a factory had stolen, and the smoke had billowed out and blocked. sitting in Laurelhurst Park with David Steinberg. This is the first uh, podcast that we've recorded, or I've recorded in the park. I kind of like it. It's beautiful. It's nice. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great place. It's nice to be outside. I hope you, I hope you all can hear the outside. <laughs> a lot of people listening to the podcast are, are sitting in cubicles at work. 
Okay. Uh, you know, and they're doing whatever their job requires them to do, but they listen to podcasts because it, you know, gives them some brain candy as well. Right. So I hope you're getting a little of that fresh air through your ears. David Steinberg is an author, a photographer, and what can we call you? A sexual revolutionary? Is that fair enough? Well, what what I, are I you? What do you call yourself? Scare people, but um, <laughs> yeah, what do I call myself? I I I I think of myself as a. a sexual sensibility person uh the subtitle Good. of this book this thing we call sex is called a radically sensible look at sex in america yeah and i think um my perspective has been to just try to be sensible about sexuality because which seems to be enough to make you a radical just yeah just by doing that so right so that, and, and an yeah, insane and, world. And a, and a revolutionary. Actually, you know, it's funny that you say that because um, aside from my own personal journey of figuring out who I was and who I am sexually as an individual, um, in terms of putting out work into the world, I came through this um, as uh, through politics. I was in the 60s. I'm 70 years old. I was in the 60s. You're 70 years old. Yeah, I know. I don't look it, but I... Fuck a lot, kids. (laughs) It works. (laughs) But in the 60s, I was uh, involved in radical politics a lot. I was involved in the civil rights movement in the South, and I was involved in the Students for Democratic Society, and, uh, you know, we all wanted to make a revolution, basically, to radically change the way power and money were distributed in the United States. And, And as we thought about that, uh, spe- specifically around racial issues, but also around uh, economic stuff, and we realized that there are cultural underpinnings to the way things are. That unless we started to address those issues and challenge those issues, the political change was not about to happen. And we listed a number of of. Um, pillar what we called pillars of the status quo and and one of them was sexual repression Hmm. that this is a way that governments and people in power governments and churches two versions of people in power um uh try to control and i think effectively do control people if you take away people's sense of sexual empowerment by confining their sexuality strictly you take away their sense of power in general i think and so um I don't think it's coincidental that the people who um, are constantly trying to narrow the acceptable sexual playing field are people who want to consolidate power in the hands of a few. So we came at that, for me, it was like that was one of the things we did. We started challenging, well, at that time, um, uh, marriage, women's roles, uh, gender roles, uh, heterosexuality, and... um, um, the way the economy was organized, but right. also the way sexuality was organized. And we moved to San Francisco. This is 1969 for me because that's where people were kind of thinking, and we we call this um, cultural revolution. It was play yeah. on words for what was happening in China. Right. Um, but we, you know, radically trying to change the cultural underpinnings was what uh, what we thought was the first step that serious advocates of social change should be doing and california seemed to be where that was happening so we came out here to start to do we started alternative schools 
and just start challenging a whole bunch where, of Where did you uh, come from? Uh, at that time, I was living in Washington, D.C. I grew up in New York, went to college in uh, Oberlin College, a small liberal arts school in Ohio. Um, went to Princeton for a year, graduate school, got sick of that. And uh, What did you study? Uh, in Oberlin, I, w- I was a mathematics major, uh-huh. uh, logic theory. That's where I came from. I was going to be a math professor. And then really? I got politically involved and and decided I, I wanted to go to graduate school in political science. And uh, But I finished at Oberlin and went to Princeton in political science, but it was not anything related to anything I saw as being useful for what was happening out in, in the streets. Right, and, uh, to Ivory Tower. Yeah, it was graduate school at uh, Ivy League. You know, people were becoming yeah. the world's greatest expert on Franco-German relationships between 1812 and 1814 and stuff like that. And yeah. I, I, you know, all power to them, but it wasn't what I was interested in. Yeah. At that time, leaving school would have meant getting drafted into the Vietnam War, but... Um, it's a long story. I don't want to take up a whole lot of time with it, but um, no, take there, it. There was <laughs> it's interesting. There was a way. Those are interesting days. It was interesting days, uh, as it it turned. Anyway, a, a friend of mine who was doing what they called civil rights programming at an organization called the U.S. National Student Association, which is the sort of the national union of students in the United States. Most people in this country don't know, but in every country, there's a national union of students. Mm. In, in the U.S., all the student governments of the colleges and universities that belong where there's four or five hundred of them um, make delegates and and their national programming and all that uh, comes out of it and I had been involved with the National Student Association when I was an undergraduate at Oberlin and and the guy who was doing civil rights programming for them asked me if I wanted to take his place uh, that year Hmm. and he said he couldn't tell me why but if I did I didn't have to worry about being drafted so um, really? I said, okay, and then um, uh, I dropped out of school and, and took this job, uh, and that's when I found out that the reason was because uh, it turned out the CIA was funding the U.S. National Student <sighs> Association. You were been, working for the man. Had been for since oh. 1955, um, and this was all completely underground, although while I was there, it came out into the press. It was this huge political story and set the CIA back for about 30 years. All this came out not only were they funding the National Student Association, they were funding everybody in sight um, in subterranean and actually illegal ways. And right. uh, So they could keep an eye on dissent and organizations that might lead to some violence? Is that Mostly so they could keep an eye on the emerging movements in third world countries this is the 60s now so in africa and asia all these places were emerging from colonialism basically so and the students were were going to be the leaders of the future and so they wanted to know which students were pro-american and which students were pro-russian because that was the Mm. issue at that time so anybody who had any dealings with anybody in other countries was asked to come back you know very innocently no big deal just could you just tell us uh, who you met and give us a general sense of our politics so we'll know you know who to who to back and who to worry about and stuff yeah. like that and mostly people in, were glad to do that it was a good liberal cold war um, political stance and they did this um, with student organizations. They did this with scientists. They did this with educators. They, uh, you know, they, um, 
and, and that, there was this just huge network. So I woke up one day to discover that all my friends were working for the CIA. And, and this, my friend who had invited me in said, here's how it works. Um, your draft board will try to draft you, and then you'll appeal, and then your appeal will be denied. But then there's a thing called the Presidential Appeal Board, and they can step in anytime they want and say, don't draft this guy. And we've got an arrangement. That time it was with Hubert Humphrey, who was vice president, um, and he will step in and save your neck. Um, but what guarantee do you have that that's true? Well, I mean, four and, years later, you could be, you know, going, oh, a presidential appeal board, and you well, know, they at, might and say, at, fuck ex- off, kid. Ex- exactly. And, and, you know, it, it had been going on this way year after year. And this was a trusted friend. Um, so I got there, and no sooner did I get there than this whole CIA story exploded. The CIA relationship with the U.S. National Student Association went up in smoke, right. and, and the whole thing was... <laughs> it's all bets was, are off. It was, yeah. And, uh, and you were already out of school. Yeah, I was ready. I thought... And then I got reclassified 1A, and, and I thought... I, I figured I was toast. And yeah. I, in fact, I had... My wife, I was just married for a year. My my wife and I, you know, we debated Canada versus jail, as did a lot of people at that time. And I decided I would go to jail because if you go to Canada, you you could deal with that for the rest of your life. If you go to jail, at that time, they were sentencing people to three years in jail, for, and you would get out after 13 months. And um, I figured if I could deal with federal prison for 13 months I would be done with it. What kind of prisons were they sending? Well, my friend had gotten sent to Chillicothe prison in Ohio for example. Um, You know, I was nervous about it. Were they medium security? Minimum? I don't remember... I don't. I don't know too many people who actually went to jail during that time. Had Ali gone to prison at that point when you were thinking about this? I think that was later, but I'm not uh, sure. So this is now... It's around 69, 70. 69, yeah, yeah, and 70. As it turns out, my draft board did not. They gave me a, um, an occupational deferment because we were running an alternative junior high school in San Francisco, uh. um, which was totally bizarre. Um, actually, what I think happened is my draft board, there was a bunch of old white Jewish men in a draft district because my uh, legal address at that time was in New York, um, in a draft district that had a few sort of middle-class white people on the Upper East Side but was mostly East Harlem, so it was all Puerto Rican. Um, I think that they just decided not to draft me because um, I you were was one a, of a white guy. And, <laughs> and I knew what that was going on, and it was pretty disgusting. On the other hand... I, I accepted yeah. <laughs> and uh, went on because they were drafting public school teachers out of New York. Their, their occupations were not in the national interest enough. But me running an alternative right. junior high school run by uh, students in a radical way in San Francisco, that was okay. <laughs> so that's how I, I lucked out. Strange days. Strange anyway, like days. I said, long story. But I, but that and then we moved to San Francisco and. Um, uh, a couple years after that and uh, got involved with all the alternative politics that was going on sort of in the wake of the free speech movement at Berkeley and Summer of Love and the Haight-Ashbury and you know all the cultural upheaval yeah. which included a lot of, of challenging of traditional sexual notions obviously through the hippies and acid and all, right. all that stuff. Right. Were you? Uh, did you use hallucinogens before you got to San Francisco, or was that part of that? No, later. 
um, and um, it was it was actually a really Im- important part of my life in general um, mm-hmm. and my sexual life in particular in a in a really positive way. Um, I enjoyed the hell out of reading Steve Jobs's um, bi- the biography of Steve Jobs because Steve Jobs attributes so much of his brilliance to yeah. LSD. And uh, it's a shame he still acted like such a prick. Though. Yeah, I know, I know. It's a, it's, it's true. You know, I, I always feel that when I you read about these people. Um, uh, who's another famous scientist I met? Carrie Mullis, uh, who developed the uh, uh, polymerase chain reaction where you can replicate DNA. Okay. So, like, he he came up with this idea how you could take a tiny sample of DNA and and replicate it endlessly so that, you know, like DNA at crime scenes, for example. that All that comes out of his, you know, and... and uh, you know, taking a little blood sample and, and, you know, creating so much DNA that you can do all these experiments. It changed the world of science. And he, he was the same. He said, yeah, I would never would have thought of this if I hadn't uh, had experience with LSD. Yeah. And with that, you know, it was not a party drug to me. It was a, it was right. a, a serious, uh, scary thing to do right. and Im- important. Um, uh, I see uh, it as educational. You know, it's, it, it's like, if people and we've talked about this i've had people like dennis mckenna on the podcast and some scientists who use lsd in in psychotherapy with people mm-hmm. who are dying and you know all sorts of stuff and what i always say to to listeners is it's not you don't take hallucinogens to have fun you don't take acid and go to a bar or a concert mm-hmm. you go to the forest or the desert or maybe you put on some headphones and listen to Bach or something, but you go deep, you go in, you go, and and a bad trip is simply a misunderstanding of an educational experience. Yeah, or or an educational experience that's so profound that you're not quite ready to hear it. Yeah, that's, you know, and you get scared and and start backing out of right of where it's leading. I mean, people do take acid and go to parties, and I don't understand that. I could I could not do that, but. Um, but I think it's a lost opportunity. When my son, who's now 44 years old, was a teenager, um, at some point I sat him down and I said, look, Dylan, sex and drugs are powerful, important tools to self-growth and understanding. I hope that you get into each of them in a way that does not make them superficial and stupid, uh, which so many people do. Right. And... Uh, I think, he, as it turns out, he did not get into drugs a lot. And I assume, although he's pretty private about it, that his sex life is, uh, you know, something that's other than superficial. But I I think uh, it was tremendously important to me. It opened me up to it. There was like a whole level of existence beneath the, what it, beneath the surface that I had been riding on. And mm. I said, oh, my God, all this stuff has been going on all the time. And I've just been completely blind to it. Yeah. And I gave myself 10 years to learn how to do that, to live on that level without acid, basically. And it took about 20. And I don't know <laughs> if I could say I'm now constantly living in the state of <laughs> yeah. acid awareness. But but the, the doors that that opened to me, um, and, and a lot of that, well, what happened is coincidentally with my first acid trip, which is a whole complicated story, um, I met a woman, um, not my wife, uh, and we had an open relationship, but still not my wife, who um, 
opened me to sexuality at a similar to what the acid had done. Well, uh, uh, on a deeper level than I had ever understood sexuality to exist before, and all of a sudden it was like, oh my God, this is what really matters. Uh, sort of what acid did to me about life in general. This relationship with this woman did to me about sexuality. It's like, oh, this is what you can connect with somebody in this amazingly intimate, personal, complicated, fascinating um, way through sexuality. It's a it's a language. It's a path, um, and it was like, whoa, blew my mind and then and i i tried to incorporate that into my marriage uh, my wife who was wonderful and we had a wonderful relationship in a lot of ways basically was not interested in in this levels to to something for her i kept on saying susie no you don't i'm not explaining clearly obviously you're going to want to do this and she said david david i, I hear you i don't want it mm. i said oh then i guess we have to go separate ways cuz i i don't want to not have to not follow this path and I started to to do that and it was you know it's been remarkable to me mm -hmm. and a lot of my sexual perspective when I started writing about sexuality and doing all the stuff that read, led to this book sort of came off of I and mean, one of the things I keep on saying to people is sort of what I said to my son um, you can do this in a deep way instead of in a trivial way if you want to and it's pretty amazing if you do Let, let's be clear though when you say uh you know don't trivialize don't don't um you know don't take this in a shallow direction you're not uh the sort of person who's scolding people having sex outside of marriage or outside of uh long-term relationships or you know people who are into bdsm or things like that you're sort of the opposite of that person well i would say all all of what you just said are examples of addressing sex in a complicated and deep way mm. and i'm not even being scolding of people who uh, you know just think of sex as um getting off and and never get very intimate and i mean if, if that's what you want to do and you got a partner who wants to is willing to do that with you all right, knock yourself out from my point of view you're missing out on a lot but who am i to say what your life is supposed to be all about right, right? But I, I, so no, I don't, I don't feel, you know, judgmental. It's, um, you know, consenting adults and, and um, do whatever you want. Um, I, I often think of it as um, sexuality to me is a lot like music, you know, and I've, I've said this and probably on the podcast before, but that, you know, th there, there is the kind of or experiences that you're describing, which are, you know, in terms of music, might be you know comparable to a uh, uh, Bach uh, cantata in a 15th century cathedral that just fucking blows your mind, right? But there's also like blues down at the bar on Friday nights right. with you right. know a bunch of drunk friends hanging out having fun. the The entire spectrum is legitimate as long as it's, from my perspective, as long as nobody's being exploited, there's nobody being hurt. And the fact that you sometimes go down to the the bar and and get off on the blues doesn't mean you're not you lose the capacity for appreciating the Bach in the cathedral. I think we're you know we have the capacity for that wide range yeah. of experience, and um, 
you know, when you were talking earlier about being a sexual revolutionary, walking over here, you and I talked about uh, how I got into podcasting, and I was on this guy, uh, this comedian's podcast. His name's Duncan Trussell. And one of our conversations, he said to me, you know what you are? He has this weird kind of high voice. He said, you're a, you're a shame exorcist. <laughs> you're just going around trying to exercise everyone's shame. Uh, that, that's a good description of your career as well, right? Sure. I mean, you're, sure. you're very much uh, in your photography. And let's talk about the different things you've done. I mean, we're going to talk about your book. By the way, I, I, before I forget... Now, I lived in San Francisco in 90, uh, several times in my life, but the last time I lived there was 92 to 95. Okay. So just when the internet was starting up, and I was in graduate school, and someone turned me on to your, your pamphlet or whatever. You, columns. Your col- but you sent them out, like once a month. Yeah, I was, writing a, I was writing a monthly column on sexuality. Um, when did it start? Nine, nine, God, um, 91, early, okay. early on. So, yeah. Spectator Magazine, which was San Francisco's sex weekly rag full of phone sex ads and stuff like that, right. decided they wanted some real content and got four of us to start writing a month, uh, once a month. Me, Carol Queen, the editor of Spectator's name is Lane Winkleblack, and one of their staff members, a guy named Dave Patrick. So, Lane asked, do you want to write for a spectator, you know, I'll pay you a hundred dollars a column, and um, and he had seen a couple things that I had written earlier about sexuality, and I said, sure, it sounded interesting, and he just gave me a free reign to do whatever I want, and I wrote for fifteen years. I wrote one hundred and fifty-eight columns for them. And the only thing is that nobody reads the columns in Spectator magazine, right. so I mean, like, I never even got one letter back <laughs> complaining or <laughs> praising or anything right. so then i said well shit if i'm going to be writing all this stuff somebody mm-hmm. ought to be reading it so i started i sending it out to a bunch of friends right over the internet which as you said i was just learning what is this thing called the internet yeah so it started out 100 people and then you know word got out and pretty soon i was sending it out to like four thousand people all over the world and 30 or 40 other sites were reprinting when I would write a column. And Did you ever send them out by mail? Was there ever a period where you no, were sending them out by no, mail? No, and that would have been expensive. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, but I, no, I just, I just started doing it. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, that's when I came so, yeah, across, yeah. across your works. That was so long ago, my God. And, and so here we are in 2015 talking about it, 20 yeah. years later. Yeah, I did. Then Spectator more. went out of business, and I continued writing the columns for a couple of years after that. And at that point, I saw another side story, but uh, I started doing uh, this, what I call fine art sexual photography, um, black and white photography from a fine art point of view of couples being sexual, regular folks, like not glamour people, uh, being all ages, 19 to 75, all sexuality and so on, being sexual at home um, with me taking pictures of it, trying to capture... uh, well, essentially what matters to me about sexuality, which is the emotionality and the intimacy and the, the connection between the people. And I just did it kind of a, on a lark, and uh, uh, people started liking it, and it kind of took off. I've done now 160 different couples and about wow. 200 different shoots, and all different kinds of folks. And In fact, um, this week I'm up in Seattle doing four photo shoots. Mm. Um, is it just you, or do you have a light guy? No, just me. Just and you. He, I want to keep it really simple. Yeah, I would imagine. I want people to be natural. Um, so I 
I, that's why I photograph them at home rather than in the studio. And I tell them, listen, this is all about you. I will move my lights around you. Um, you're welcome to acknowledge me, but you can forget that I'm there. I just want you to feel comfortable, comfortable with me, comfortable with the notion of being photographed, comfortable with the notion that these photographs are going to go out into the world in some way, and then just be yourselves. And if you're having a neat time with each other, I will get great photos. And it turned out, I mean, I, I, especially when I started, I knew no more about photography than anybody else who picks up their cell phone these days. Um, but I think I was pretty good at making people feel comfortable with mm, me. Right. Uh, it's not some sleazy guy, even if I'm standing on top of people <laughs> in the bed, <laughs> pointing my camera down at them me. while they're coming, <laughs> you know, which, which would happen. Even then they felt comfortable with that. So as a result, the pictures that I got were awesome. You know, they were just so, uh uh deep emotionally yeah. and uh, i loved them and then the magazine that i was working for in norway called cupido magazine started running my photos so i actually started making money doing this mm. and uh the upshot of all that was that i stopped writing because i just got so caught up in the photographic mindset right. which is like a whole different way of being in the world than yeah. sitting there and writing about the politics of sexuality so and that's that's funny you know i was a photographer for a while uh -huh. sort of semi semi-professional i made a little money and i think the high point of my career was that one of my photographs won a, a competition at uh, Rand mcnally and so it was on like the cover of their calendar yeah, in awesome. 1998 or something um but uh you know i shot sort of like National Geographic kind of stuff, you know, a lot of landscapes and macros of butterflies or raindrops or whatever. But um, I love shooting people. But the thing, like, people don't understand the trick to shooting people has nothing to do with cameras. It's all about the relationship you establish. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, if people feel your camera is intrusive, you'll never, ever get a good shot, no matter what you're doing, and you don't deserve one. Right. You know, you need to be invited into that space. You're not sniping. Well, that's what I feel. When I feel like people invite me into their sexual, when they decide they want to do a shoot with me, um, and I'm always, since we're on the air, always looking for new people to photograph and stuff. So mm -hmm. they're inviting me into their most personal place. It's, yeah. it's an honor to be invited into right. this sacred ritual. What, what can you call it? And, and I just try to respect that with my photography by not sensationalizing it, by not imposing my exterior agenda on the photos but my job is to see what's going on and figure out how to capture it on film and yeah how do you negotiate with the the subjects as to which photographs are published um generally i don't although i've made except generally people sign releases um letting me do whatever i want mm. um by the time we've gotten to the point of doing a shoot there's a lot of trust they know i'm not dealing with porn sites or stuff like porn sites aren't interested in what i'm doing sure um so i've had a few people who wanted to be able to screen the photos um but in general people say you know whatever sometimes people only want me to use it for cupido which is a norwegian magazine there are people who mm. you know, it, if my boss found out if my kids find out if my right. parents found out i could be in trouble so sometimes they will write 
restrictions on the release. And as long as I can use it in Norway, I'm okay because that's basically how I pay for the cost of a shoot. I shoot film, so right. there's there's costs involved. Um, but generally, people are are leave it up leave it up to me. And what what I tell the people that I shoot is this is the only way you will ever see what you look like when you're deep down in the middle of your sexual space looking at <laughs> looking in the mirror is not it because if you're if you're yeah. if you're got enough of forebrain going to look in the mirror yeah. then then you're not there anymore yeah and the video isn't going to do it because you have to find the right moment and and freeze it but i tell people that you will get to see who you are now if if that's going to freak you out then think twice about it because you will see yourself but mostly people say yeah. oh my god I'm beautiful. Oh my God, we are we as a couple if, yeah, are wonderful. And so for a lot of people who are having body issues, and I've done a whole series of people with disabilities and so on, doing a shoot becomes a way of personal affirmation of their beauty and worthwhileness as a sexual person, which is exactly what I want. It's not if you were 10 years younger, 10 pounds thinner if your body was shaped differently from what it is it's no this is who you are right now you know whatever it is fat old um weird um you are still awesome when you're in the middle with your somebody that you really have uh, a deep emotional connection with and expressing that through your sexuality it's funny the way you describe that um sounded so much like what we just said about um taking acid yeah you know yeah. that if you're if you don't want to see what you are, then you better better off avoiding this. Mm-hmm. But if you do want to see what you are, and you've got the courage to confront that, what you're going to find is pretty beautiful. Yeah. If you go through, if you you know the only way out is through, you go through whatever it is that's freaking you out. On the other side is self acceptance and knowledge and wisdom and beauty. You know it's yeah. Yeah. And I think that's really, in a lot of my columns, that was that was one of the themes I would come back to over and over again. If you have sexual desires that freak you out because you say, oh, my God, how could I have a fantasy like that? How could I have a dream about that where, you know, you're slapping somebody or um, you're being a child in diapers or right. being or, raped or, or, or being raped, which yes. is a common yeah. fantasy, you know. How could I want something like that? And I would say to people, you know what? Trust yourself. Chances are, I mean, I'm sure there are some uh, toxic people out there reading my columns, but I bet you're not one of them. And you might say, God, why do I want that? But embrace it and trust it. There's something, something okay and good about that. If you're not hurting anybody, if you're not exploiting anybody, um, why why is it not okay you know you're talking about sex being like music and there's all these different ways to like music mm. well it's like saying um, if if you like blues you're a pervert right you know which or, was what, said for decades well, you know? exactly yeah. you know or if you if you like carrots instead of peas yeah you're a pervert do you know and, that jazz it comes from the same root word as jism oh is that right yeah it's okay. a west african uh-huh. word uh-huh. jazz and jism yeah. uh and uh yeah, I remember that. That's in your book. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, what was the other one? Funk uh, is it comes from a word, mafunke, um, meaning uh, positive sweat. Okay. So the sweat you get from fucking and dancing, but not from working. Right, right. <laughs> good. I love that shit. Good. All right, we're back with fresh batteries. Okay. Yeah, good. 
Yeah, that's uh, we were just talking about the the tragedy of um, of podcasts that you record the whole thing and then the batteries die or or there's some technical problem. Uh, that's only happened to me a couple of times. I did a I did a podcast with um, you probably know him, Marty Klein. Sure, you know, good friend. Yeah, I did. I, did one with him and uh this early days this was in the first you know dozen or so that i recorded and somewhere in the the process it the file disappeared (laughs) i don't know where i don't know if it was in the machine or in my computer the whole thing disappeared we keep saying we're going to do it again but uh you know haven't haven't found the time but anyway so uh we're talking about uh when we pause there you were talking about the 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 photographic experience and this idea of people confronting uh what it is that that you know i think i was thinking about this yesterday actually i don't know why when i was jogging i was thinking about that probably everyone feels a certain degree of disgust concerning their own bodies I lived in a in a mansion with fashion models for years, and those people were so uptight about their bodies. Um, and the reason I know that is I ended up doing massage therapy with the fashion models. Long story, I won't get into. Um, but th- th- they were so fucking uptight about their bodies. Now, understandably, they make their living from their bodies, and they have extremely high expectations for you know everything has to look perfect and every you know the skin tone and the muscle tone and everything has to be in place but i think that um you know if if johnny depp eats mexican food johnny depp has a messy shit six hours later right and he's sitting there on the toilet and he's johnny fucking depp and it stinks like hell and he knows that everybody treats him like a goddamn god but he knows what a shitty, disgusting being he is, right? <laughs> Sometimes, or Penelope Cruz, or whomever. We're we're all. I think Buddha, you know, one of his teachings. Somebody talked about a beautiful woman, and he said, "Oh, you know, believe me, that beautiful woman's guts smell horrible." You know, um, and so I. But I think that that's one of the getting back to your first point: how structures of power cultivate shame as a way as a lever to control our behavior you know original sin what the fuck is original sin you are born in debt to god because you're a fallen horrible disgusting little creature yeah what the fuck kind of mind view is that you know no i well i i'm with you i mean i don't I don't believe in original sin. I don't believe in. I don't believe in evil, really. Mm. I. I mean, I, I believe in. I think people start out um, pure in some way, and and then it depends what happens to them. You know. Yeah. Uh, something ter- made Hitler be the person that he was. Uh, so when people talk about evil, I say, well, you know, evil and deranged or or close to each other but yeah. I, I but yeah I, I and when I tell people to accept their sexual desires even when they are shocking to to yourself that's what I'm talking about you know right. uh, at heart um, is goodness and I, I I don't know why that seems to be so hard for people to accept except that we've been brainwashed with it so Entirely, and some of it, I think, is the power issue you were talking about, and some of it is economic. If if people feel bad about themselves, you can sell them anything so that they 
will attempt through which they will attempt to ameliorate what yeah. um, horrible or certainly about sexuality how yeah. undesirable they are but right. if I have a Porsche if I have the right cologne if I have the right clothes if I have the right hairstyle if I have the right attitude if I have the right breast implants if I have the right whatever maybe then I'll be able to fool people into thinking that I'm sexually right. desirable. But I still know how ugly but I am. But meanwhile, underneath it all, we all know yeah. that it's all uh, a fraud. And and I'm saying, wait, 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 wait. Mate, what if it's, you're just okay, more than okay? What if you're just wonderful, just you mm-hmm. and your partner or your partner, right. or however you do that, just every day... You wake up in the morning, you're, you're in the afternoon, and you drift down the sexual road, and you do whatever you do. It's hot and it's heavy, or it's not, or it's cuddly, or it's ridiculous because something goes wrong in the middle, or whatever, you know. What if all that is what's really beautiful? And yeah. What if you thought about it like that and just gave yourself a break? So that's that's yeah. the whole... That's my um, messianic <laughs> mess. You know, the message from the Messiah is there's no message from the Messiah. You know, the <laughs> message from the Messiah is that it's, hey, it's all just okay the way it is. Yeah. Well, I, and also, you know, that we give energy to things by resisting them. Mm-hmm. Right. And so if, you know, let's say, you're, you know, okay, why do I have this this fantasy about slapping my lover? Right. Spanking, whatever. If you freak out about that, you're pumping energy into it. You're, you're putting fuel on that fire. And the more you freak out about it, the more you resist it, the hotter it gets. And the, you know, the more twisted up and tight you become about that, that part of yourself. And then it ends up coming out somewhere. It come, and, it, and the problem is that when it gets all amped up by repression and shame and all these toxic feelings that, that people apply thinking that they're controlling or negating this uh, essential appetite for whatever it is, then they end up distorting it and it, it, and it does become destructive. Right. I mean, you know, people who abuse children or I mean, I read recently, uh, you know, one of many studies that have been done over the years that demonstrate really clearly that men who um, express a lot of negativity about homosexuality uh, you know, dirty fags and all that kind of attitude. Those are the men who, when they see homoerotic videos, more blood flows to their genitals than the men who just don't really right. care one right. way or the other. So clearly, you know, what's happening is you're attracted to guys, you're freaking out about it, you're creating a conflict within yourself that's lending more energy to that that leads you to go out and, like, what, suck a dick and then beat somebody up. It's it's crazy. Right. Whereas if you just, like... Right. Suck the dick or not, right. but it, except that you feel like it sometimes, right. it's not a big deal. Right. Or not suck the dick and beat the guy up because you're angry at him for making you <laughs> for feel being who you, like you want yeah, him. Yeah. And, or, yeah. You know, or, 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 or being who you wish you had the strength to be. Out. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. Or, or people who beat up beautiful women because um, how dare you tempt me? You know, the, right. the woman temptress right. thing. And it does come out distorted. This is essentially Reichian. Um, right. Psychology and politics, because Wilhelm Reich was all into that—that that it's all about repression. What the fuck with the Oregon accumulator? Why well, did he, he have to get into that he, bullshit? He got a little bit off the deep end before he <laughs> before he got put in prison yeah, and died and stuff like that. Horrible. But he, he was my guy. I mean, I did Reiki yeah. and ther- Reiki and therapy turned my life around. Really, and, uh, beca- working through the body yeah. the way that um, past 
pains are held in the body, and if you release them through the body, then the pain can come out. And and he said all disease is the result of uh, repressed emotions of one form or another. And I think it's a little bit over the top, but, you know, every time I get sick, even with a cold or a flu or a, or a pulled muscle or whatever, it's like, okay, what... What is this serving? What is what is this sickness right. accomplishing? And I always, I just think of it as psychologically motivated. Of course, you need germs, but germs are always around. It's just ninety nine percent of the time we fight them off. Now, right. why is it that one percent of the time the body says, "Okay, germs, come take me over," you know? And yeah. So anyway, in terms of sexual yeah. stuff in particular, I just think um, again, it's if if our basic attitude about sexuality is it's beautiful, it's wonderful, it's an adventure, it's exhilarating, it's a blessing. It's a whole different ball of wax. And if our basic attitude about sex is it's dangerous, it will get us pregnant, it will get us diseased, Disease. it will get us um, yeah. uh, doing weird shit in the gutter and, and get us committed, you know, which is kind of the social, uh, the bottom line. It's, maybe it's changing, but I think there's a lot. And, and maybe among young, some younger people now are growing up uh, without such a sex-negative bottom bottom line. But I think that's what we're up against, and that people should take their anger and confusion about sexual stuff and direct it to the proper source, which is all this garbage that we're being uh, fed by a culture that is so afraid of sexuality instead of expressing it toward whoever gays, whatever sexual... Um, expression yeah. uh, somebody finds objectionable. What, what's happening? I mean, you've got a, a broader perspective on this than I do in terms of history. I mean, you, you live through the so-called sexual revolution, which is a phrase that sort of irritates me because because it allows people to assume that that, that was the only... Uh, uh, period of sexual liberation in the United States, whereas it's been cyclical, cyclical, mm-hmm. right? The 20s, people were doing all sorts of great stuff sexually, you know, and then, well, and obviously in Sex Adon, you know, our argument is that any sort of movement toward liberation is really a step back to where we came from, you know, mm-hmm. shame-free sexual expression and communal raising of children and all that kind of stuff. Um, but what's your take? You mentioned Oberlin earlier that you went to Oberlin. What's your take on what the hell is going on now in America? Because to me, it feels, I can't figure out what the hell is happening on one side. Trans people are much more accepted. I had a trans, uh, porn star on the podcast two weeks ago and she's completely relaxed and funny and doesn't care what pronoun people use. And, you know, it's wonderful to have a conversation with her. Um, and and she's finding her way in the world without a lot of trouble, which is wonderful to see. On the other side, uh, you know, you've got this stuff going on at Oberlin and elsewhere where the people are, you know, a date. Three months after the date, the woman decides it's rape and the guy gets kicked out of school. And it's like, what the hell? Are we moving toward acceptance or not? Yeah. Because it sort of seems like it's going both ways. Yeah, I... I my again a theme that i keep on coming back to in in the writings and all is i think that we're basically moving in a positive direction mm. um 
gay people are still being discriminated against, abused, murdered, transsexual people even more so. I've been yeah. very much involved in the transsexual community. Um, so, you know, obviously we have a long way yeah. to go, but it is not what it used to be. To be a 12-year-old, 10-year-old transsexual person now compared to what that was like 20 years ago is like night and day. The word is out. And um, the same thing about, you know, look at what's happening with same-sex marriage. It's, and yeah. who, who even thought 10 years ago, that, you know, in the gay community, everybody said, no, we can't push for same-sex marriage because there'll be a backlash if we do. And we'll end up behind those, a big split as to whether or not to do that. And the people who wanted to did it. And, and now everybody says, okay, I guess we, we, it was a step in a positive direction. Yeah. I think of it that that is what's happening. That, and, and from my for a couple of reasons. One is inform, free information is much more available than before. The Internet is a, a right. huge, huge part of that. Whatever strange, strange meaning, unconventional sexual desire you may have, you can go on the Internet and find a whole support group of thousands of other people who are just as unusual as you. And how did you deal with this with your wife, with your parents, with your children, with your employer, whatever it might be? So there's more information. Information is power. Um, uh, And the other one, which I think goes back to the 60s, is we have reliable birth control. For what I understand, you, you know more about this anthropologically than me, what I understand to be essentially the first time in human history there is reliable birth control available to huge, not everybody yet, but huge, huge numbers of people. Somebody told me that the Aztecs had reliable birth control, and I don't know about that. Maybe so. But in general, it used to be sex was dangerous in a way because if everybody went around fucking everybody all the time, you're going to end up with all these children, and that's a social problem. Who's going to raise these kids how do we deal with that? So all societies develop all these rules about who's allowed to do that and who that, largely around um, um, making sure that there's a mechanism for children to get taken care of. Once you can more or less reliably, let's say 99% of the time, separate any kind of sexual activity from children and to some extent from disease, there's disease are still issues, but you know there are... There are inconvenient diseases like syphilis, say, you take penicillin and it gets better. And then there's diseases that will kill you that we don't have any cures for, which are more serious. So that that's a real concern, but that's a manageable concern. Suddenly it becomes possible to open up the doors to free sexual expression without having um, social disaster as a result. And I think that that, that is a change that is... A, 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 mom, a crucial moment in the history of the human species. I mean, it's just like everything post-birth control pills compared to everything before that. Um, it is a whole new ballgame. And also, you know, the whole variety of societies around the world are going to take 50 years or 100 years to adjust to that change, basically. And that that's what's going on. And it's, I think of it sort of in Marxian terms as a sort of historically inevitable process. And the backlash is because all the people who don't like those changes for whatever psychological reasons or religious reasons, which I think of as psychological reasons, um, 
are in such fear about the inevitability of that and, and the handwriting being on the wall that their view of how the world should be is going down in flames, that they're fighting all these rear guard actions out mm-hmm. of the sense of panic. Right. And I can understand their panic and I can say, you know, um, you know, if you wish the world was that way, I'm sorry. But it's just it's not, not going to yeah. be that way, and yeah. you just better get used to it. And uh, and yeah, well that that explains the Supreme Court, or at least five of them, or four. We don't know. We'll find out within days here, probably, as far as the gay marriage decision. But um, explains the Taliban. It explains uh, you know a lot of like redneck right wing political uh, people. But it doesn't explain the scolding. Um, circular fire squad of modern feminism. I, I said, do you know who Aziz Ansari is? He's a comedian, Indian yeah. uh, American comedian, a really nice guy. And he and I corresponded for a while after sex at dawn came out. He read it. He, he was on a TV show called parks and recreation for years. I don't know if you watch TV, but um, he's very well known. Right. And he and a sociologist just co-authored a book about, um, sexuality, dating, relationships, and all this stuff. And he, in an interview, he said, I'm a feminist. I I think men and women have equal rights and and that that is basic and essential and undeniable. And and now there's this backlash against him, um, essentially for being insufficiently, you know, you you referenced the Maoist cultural revolution earlier. I, I feel that on the left in this country, there's this, there is that cultural revolution, this purging of people who are insufficiently pure and, and uh, like a vicious attack machine, um, particularly against men who dare to try to be part of feminism. It, mm-hmm. And it didn't feel that way when I was young. And I know it didn't feel that way when you were young. But, uh, it, you know, when I was in my 20s, it, it although I don't know, I went to college when Andrea Dworkin and woman hating and all that sort of rabid anti man, all men are rapists kind of ideology was really um, the sort of the first wave of that. Um, but still, I felt like most women were happy to have you on their side. Now it feels like you can't be on their side. You're a man. You're a white man. You're the enemy. Well, among some, it's interesting that you bring that up because one of the political bases that I came out of was the well, the male feminist movement, um, and, and early in the, from the beginning, that and it changed my life in terms of of being able to reconceptualize what it meant to me to be a man. About you know, we used to have national conferences called men and masculinity conferences, and these were pro what we called pro feminist men. And so we were in support of the feminist movement, um, meaning um, equal power for for men and women. And we were looking at what is it about our training as men in this culture? Um, what do we like about that? What do we not like about that? And can we reject the parts that we don't like or, or combat them? And and do we want to be the breadwinners and the authoritarian ones who scold the kids and and um, and the ones who are responsible for making everything come out right in the end and all of that stuff, or not? And for me, I I chose not to do that. I chose I chose to uh, not work full time because I didn't want to be a secondary parent. I wanted to be a primary parent and. And all, and I, and there were these conferences in California. It was called the California Men's Gathering of 
hundreds of men, gay and straight. It was one of the, one of the earliest places where gay and straight men, people hadn't even heard about bisexuals back then, um, coming together and feeling safe with each other. For the <coughs> gay men to feel mm. safe in the presence of straight men and for the straight men to be feel safe in the presence of, say, 50% gay men. Right. And, and there's so much teaching to go on back and forth. And what does it mean to be a feminist man? I, I consider myself a feminist man. And I, I understand what you're saying, that there are certain aspects of people who call themselves radical feminists um, that, I mean, I just think it's a, a perversion of the notion of feminism the same way um, um, jihad is a perversion of Islam. You yeah. know? And I think that that will always happen. You have people who are angry, and, and, you know, and I, I, but I... I identify with the anger. I identify yeah. Andrea Dworkin before she went nuts was brilliant, and um, um, you know to say for a heterosexual woman to be sexually involved with a heterosexual man, given that he has grown up in this culture and has had, no matter how conscious he is, has had to absorb so much garbage and he will express that garbage against you and it will be hurtful to you as a woman that's correct now whether the answer to that is not to do it you know that that becomes another question i don't agree with that but but as a as a sexist man we were you know i was in the earliest people defining racism for example you know we are all white people we are all racist not only white people black people are also right. racist not against white people but against black people because black people have also absorbed all the negative stereotypes about black people as white people have there's no way to say i am not racist there's no way to say i am not sexist or any of those other biases it's it's unconscious it starts when you're too young to be able to screen what what's coming right. in at you right. all you can do is try to be aware of oh my goodness i have absorbed this i don't like that now i'm going to try to be conscious of that and to minimize its effect on me right. and how i relate to other people right and try to be and ask people on the other side of whatever divide we're talking about help me with this okay right. uh, how, how do i Call me on my my shit when you see it, and I don't, because right. chances are you're more aware of it than I am. Thank you very much for doing that. Let's work on this together. And you know, uh, you you cannot be not racist. You cannot undo 400 years of what white people have done to black people in this country. However, you can move forward in a in a yeah. progressive way. So, and then the people who are just like, oh no, I don't accept that. And you know, they get a lot of press. Yeah. But I don't believe that. I, I, I think what's much more common now is you'll hear women saying, I am not a feminist. But they are feminists. They are feminists in yeah. my definition. Well, of that's feminism. the problem. I, I, the word I, has gone. The word has but been corrupted. But the word corrupted. is different than yeah. the move. You know, because yeah. what's happened is so many women ex have now, you know, young women, say women under 30, have absorbed so much of what the feminist movement um, was putting out while they were growing up. But they don't even they understand don't <laughs> that as a special thing. Well, if, yeah. of course I can go have a job. Of course right. I'm smart. Of course I can do math. You know, um, I, you know. So yeah, I, and of course I can um, right. be sexual with other women if I feel like it, and other men if I feel like it on a different day. And uh, I, I, you know, whatever. It, I, I'm entitled. It's an entitlement. Well, that's feminism. Right? Yeah. And if feminism to people these days, and I've worked with people, this is a long, even a long time ago, worked with people, I refuse to be feminist because I don't hate men. 
So right. feminism had come to men, mean man-hating. Yeah. And if, if, so those people who were going around doing that or excluding trans women from the Michigan Women's Music Festival, all the strange ways that these gender politics play themselves out, I'm sympathetic to why somebody would be so hurt and so angry to do that. However, I think this is really reactionary, yeah. and uh, and and it is a bastardization of what feminism means. If that's what feminism means, we need to come up with a new word. Personally, I'm I'm um, in, um, indebted to the word, so I hold on to it and I say, no, I'm a, I'm a, a feminist. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I was amazed. You know, I I live in Spain most of the time, and I've just been in the U.S. for the last couple of years. I left when Reagan was president. That was enough. I was like, all right, this place, (laughs) this is a major uh, step in the wrong direction. But, uh, you know, I came back after Sex at Dawn came out. I did a book tour, and and then I've been living here since, you know, four years ago or whatever. And um, I was amazed by a lot of things, but one of the things that really struck me was when I was giving these talks, um, a lot of people would come up, not a lot, but some people would come up to me afterwards and badmouth Dan Savage. Like, you know, you don't understand. Dan Savage is the enemy. He's, you know, he, he wrote this thing saying that bisexual men don't really exist or he did this or he did that. And I just felt like, and, you know, we, we don't need to get into the details of, you know, Dan initially said that in his experience, most bisexual men that he had met were actually gay men who hadn't come to terms with being gay men. And it was a transitional phase of their lives. And, and he was very clear saying that's in my anecdotal experience. That's what I've seen. That's what I did myself. Um, and but the 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 vitriol uh, and the 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 like the bile uh, against Dan Savage. I, I don't know how you feel, but I, I feel like Dan Savage is a historical figure. I, oh, feel, I think he's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. And he's pulled the culture right. in such a healthy right. direction sure. and sure. given so much cover to right. so many people who are suffering and alone. But I, the dynamics that you're talking about, where amazing. one aspect of people who are being sexually oppressed um, turn their, hurt against another aspect of people who are being sexually oppressed. Um, and, yeah. and this is common among groups that are... Um, <laughs> is. D- Which is why the right-wingers rule the fucking world. That, that's exactly yeah. right. And I've, I, I, it's another thing that I argue over and over again in, in my columns and in this book. It's like, we need to... We're allies. We, we, all of us who are, are being um, called out and held down in some way around our sexuality, whether it's because we're gay... SM people, um, um, swingers, um, um, people who... Teenagers who jerk off. Teenagers who... They were the victims of war for centuries, you know? People who do what people consider age-inappropriate behavior. I mean, all kinds of stuff. Right. We need to see each other as allies. Yeah. And and it's... But it's really, really hard to get people to do that. People who identify as lesbian... 
they feel, what is your community? My community are, are my sisters who have been oppressed. And gay men, what is your community? My community is gay men who have been oppressed. And it does not include these bisexual guys right. who, you know, who, uh, yeah, sure, they have a hard time, but they don't have half as bad a hard time as I do. Yeah. And then the gay people turn their backs on the transsexual people and Barney Frank throws them under the bus. And, and it's like, what's that about? And it's like, come on, people. This is the divide and conquer. This is the way they tried. This is how racism got started in the United States. Yeah. Divide the the black working class against the white working class, make them hate each other so that they don't fight us rich people who are the, the their natural, you know, they have a natural yeah. um, common interest. We have to make sure that they don't see that. So, but try to, but it, I also feel encouraged because a lot of the young people who grow up, um, do you identify as gay? No, I identify as queer. Mm. Do you identify as lesbian? No, I identify as queer. Well, what, what, yeah. I don't know, what does that mean? Because it seems to me you're just like a, any old lesbian. <laughs> well, no, but well, you can say that, but I don't. In my guts, I just don't feel I I, I identify with all queer people. Yeah, and I, you know, yeah. yes, right. It, this there's hope, you know, and you're right. I we're talking about changes that, that, that are a, generational. Yeah. You know, as we we can. We become adults. We become aware of issues we weren't aware of before, and we modify our behavior and our thinking somewhat. But it's different than people who grow up a generation later into a different world. And like you know, yeah, I I can be sexual with that whatever gender I want. Why do you people make such a big issue about this? What what's the problem? Yeah. And I say, well, you don't understand what's the problem. <laughs> you know, my parents grew up in the depression. Yeah. And I grew up, and I said, "What is this thing about earning money all the time?" Of course, you have money. What, <laughs> why, do you, why do you spend your whole life thinking about money? Yeah. And they said, "Well, because it wasn't always like that, David." Yeah. You know, and, and same thing about sexual stuff. My son, he's very accepting of my work, but you know, the issues that that I complain about, or people my age complain about, the sexologists now. Why aren't the young people joining the sexology movement, whatever that is? And I say, because you're not talking about issues that are relevant to young people. These are issues that were important in the 60s. We should get to be sexual whenever we want. And then the young people say, well, yeah. And what, you're making a... Think about that. I know yeah. I can be sexual. That battle's won. And then, the, the, but the question you raised about date rape and all the stuff about the complexity of who's coercing who and what, to me, it's extremely complicated. And yeah, you get when it gets to the extreme, you know, you, you, is it okay if I touch you here? Is it okay if I touch you there? I'm thinking, oh man, this is romantic. Yeah. You know? On the other <laughs> hand, the issues of yeah. the, of real sexual exploitation are real. That, you're right. And the issues right. of claimed sexual exploitation that are not real or that are certainly ambiguous are real and boy a court of law boy do you, do you don't want to be in a place of uh, that's not the appropriate place for sorting out the nuances of that you know uh, a, a child has a certain sexual experience with an older person is this child abuse um or or is it something different and it, yeah is it something you know the whole question of the sexuality of children and how adults interact with that is so loaded nobody can dare talk about it yeah. but i i i say this is really complicated stuff we don't want to recognize children as sexual beings but they are they're i think for the most part sexual beings in a kind of different way than adults but if you let kids play out their sexuality on their own terms and some of the alternative schools that we were involved with do that. Mm-hmm. Um, 
um, you end up with five-year-olds um, fucking each other um, because they're playing around. Now, they're not in a five-year-old way or they've seen their parents or they've seen something on TV or something, and they're experimenting with this, and it seems sweet to me, but some other people would be horrified by that. Yeah. And then uh, as people move into adolescence and, you know, all these all these stories, you know, I'm, a friend of mine is 11 years old. He said, when I was 11, gay man, when I was 11 years old, I worked in my dad's store and I was seducing every gay man that came into the store at 11. It was coming from me. I wanted these guys and I wanted to be sexual with them and I was and it was important to me and it, these guys kept me alive at a time when being 11-year-olds and feeling gay was pretty pretty weird. Go try to talk to somebody about that who's talking about the sexual exploitation of children, which is real, important, and yeah. horrible when it happens in a coercive way. But it's never black and white. It's always complicated. But we don't want to recognize that because we are so amped up. <gasps> oh, my God, it's horrible, it's horrible, it's horrible, because it's sex, you know? It's not just like... Yeah. You know, I, I, I got groped on the set when I was 10 years old. I got groped on the New York City subway. with a crowded subway. There was this guy, and he reached out, and he grabbed my crotch. And I, I still, I can visualize him right now, this kind of dumpy-looking, scared, excited guy, you know, who fled off the, the subway at the next stop. Did this traumatize me for life? No. It was creepy. Did I tell my? I didn't tell my mom because I knew my mom would freak out. And I thought, eh, that was yucky. And then I talked to other people. You know, this is New York subway experience. Every my my partner one point grew up in New York. Said every girl who's an adolescent in New York has had some guy expose himself to her on the subways. We all talk about it with each other. You know, the, the, yeah, there was that guy. Oh yeah, that happened to me too. Is it nice? No, it's not nice. Is it the end of the world? No, not really, unless everybody flips out so much that it becomes the end of the world. Well, that that's you know that gets back to what we were talking about earlier, where this sort of denial of what exists lends power to it. So a guy showing you his his dick on the subway is only going to freak you out if a guy's dick is a big deal to you. Right. Like, right. you know, my wife grew up in Africa and I, we were talking about this sort of thing. And she said, oh, yeah, people do that in Africa, too. And Mozambique, where she's from. I said, well, how do people react? She said, oh, they, they just laugh. Everybody laughs. Like, oh, there's that crazy guy showing his dick to everyone. Right. Like, I've seen hundreds of dicks. Who gives a shit? It's another dick, you know. But if you're in a culture where, you know, this fucking Super Bowl controversy is that what's her name's nipple got flashed for two seconds, then, you know, then you're lending power to those guys who show their dicks. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. it's a weird, yeah. it's a weird thing. Um, and, you know, and to be clear, yeah. you know, there, there, are, there are people who take advantage of younger people and, and who are violated. Sure. And to be violated in a sexual way is a particularly horrible thing because sex is so personal. It's in some ways more horrible than being beat up, right. you know? And, and so I, 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 it's, it's not like I don't care about those issues. Yeah. But if we want to deal with those issues effectively, I would say, we have to do it in the context of what you're talking about, which is not being flipped out about sexuality in general. Right. And acknowledging that younger people also in their own way have a sexuality that we need to honor right. and respect instead of just denying it and saying, oh, no, they're pure because... 
because they're children and, right. and because sex is impure. We, we, we love their purity, <laughs> and right. in order to yeah. think of them as pure, we have to think of them as asexual. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, on one side, I think it's it's the American um, inability to accept sexuality, of course. But on another level, it's the American inability to accept nuance. Mm-hmm. That everything in America is either legal or illegal. And in Spain, I don't know if you spent much time no, in Spain. Not in, or, Spain. in Spain, the law works differently. The law is. Um, here, let's let's pause and move to the shade. Yeah, Remember great. That? Thank you. I didn't know. Yeah, I was saying in Spain, um, it's not clear all the time what's illegal and what determines whether or not somebody's the police or the courts or whatever will be involved is if anyone complains. So if you're growing marijuana on your terrace, well, first of all, marijuana is is legal for personal use. So as long as you say, well, you know, that's just as much as I would use and the judge agrees with you, then there's no thing. And since the cops know the judge is going to make that determination, they're not going to bother because the cops aren't your enemy. The cops aren't looking to catch you because there's nothing in it for them except paperwork. Right. So the only way they get involved in something is if your neighbors complain. Right. So in terms of sexual harassment, the only way the cops get involved is if somebody goes to the cops and says, hey, this person you know, did this or that. If if they react like, oh, this guy flashed his balls at us, you know, who gives a shit? Even if someone sees it, even if the cops see it, they're not going to probably do anything unless people complain about it. Mm-hmm. So it's a very different way of seeing mm-hmm. You know, you need a victim to have a criminal. Right. right. And in America, you don't need a victim. Right. You just need a rule to have been broken. It's a very different way of looking at things. Yeah, no, that's interesting. It's tricky because they're, they're, you know, what about children who don't complain? Because so, but then then the issue becomes that you teach your children um, that they have the right to complain. They have the right to set boundaries about their own bodies. And they're more likely to say something if they don't think you're going to lose your fucking mind. That's absolutely true. And there are studies that prove that. They were comparing the Netherlands to the United States. And in the Netherlands, on the average, a sexual predator, I think, had four victims, if you want to call them, you know, uh, before, before, getting b- b- busted. before getting busted, whereas in the U.S. it was closer to 100. And oh. why was that? That was because in the Netherlands, the kids could say, oh, this creepy thing happened to me on the way home from school today. Yeah. Whereas in the United States, the kids were more afraid to say that because they figured their parents would flip out. Right. You know, I didn't say anything to my mother. I, I continued to believe 60 years later that um, this was not a defining episode in my life although it's interesting but, you did say i can still picture this guy's face well, there is that there it, it was it was something and um but you know i could have been homophobic off of, i don't know maybe it, who knows maybe yeah. I, you know but for people to say if you don't think of that as a victimizing experience it only shows that you don't understand your situation well enough right for, that for example people who have had Childhood sexual experiences with adults that they don't think of as negative experiences. Yeah. Um, that's one. Or what happens now is all the stuff about trafficking, which is one of the things I deal with in this thing we call sex. There's this whole anti-trafficking hysteria that's going on. And they do these studies and they they go and they find out that the young people who are doing sex work, they interview them. And then they say they don't even understand that they're being victimized. They think that they're doing great. 
Yeah. They, they think these poor porn stars who think they chose to be a porn star. That's right. That's, yeah. Or these 16-year-olds who think that after they ran away from home, uh, this was a, uh, of all the options that were open to them, this works pretty well. And why did you get involved with it? Was it some pimp who, who seduced you and, you know, this nefarious dark figure on the corner who got you, you know, snatched you away and... No, it was I had a girlfriend and and I was, you know, saying, gee, I don't know what I'm going to do for a place to stay tonight. And she would say, I've been doing this for a year. It's pretty cool. You should try it. And and I tried it. And yeah, it's got its weird moments. But actually, all in all, I think it's pretty cool. And these people who these and this was now sort of a right wing anti-trafficking organization said, to their horror, they, and they did this big study, John Jay Institute in, in New York, of mm. uh, uh, underage uh, sex workers in New York, and they replicated the study with exactly the same results, pretty close statistically in Atlantic City, New Jersey, that um, you know, 80, 80% of people got into sex work um, in a way that didn't involve any coercion, any right. anybody uh, was making money off of them or any anything like that. And then and they 40% were saying... They consider this um, an interesting lifestyle or even an exciting lifestyle. And they're saying, obviously, we have to change our approach because now we have to go teach these people that, that they're <laughs> that making they'd be bad better decisions. off working a Kentucky Fried Chicken for six bucks an hour. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. yeah I mean, that, that's what kills me. We, you know, in that sort of ancillary to the trafficking hysteria you're talking about is that nobody talks about the lack of other viable options, right? Like, it's completely cool to go into into Cambodia and set up a Nike sweatshop where people are making three bucks a day sewing for 18 hours shoes that are sold for 150 bucks in the U.S. That's cool. That's fine. But if they happen to be given blowjobs for 20 bucks a pop, that's exploitation. Yes, right. And we're going to rescue them. And not only are we going to rescue them, by the way, yeah. but we're going to make up an arrangement with Nike right. whereby we, the, the people that we rescue, we, we will now put you into yeah. work at Nike yeah. for $3 an hour. And yeah. Nike says, thank you very much. Yeah. I was just yesterday, actually, I was writing uh, a section in, in Civilized to Death where I'm talking about the invention of poverty and um, how people like Adam Smith and some of the people around him, the classic uh, classical capitalist theorists, um, were actively supporting programs that w- went into the Scottish Highlands and basically uh, sabotaged people's ability not to participate in capitalism. So if you had some land, you had some sheep, uh, you know, a plot where you could grow some food, and you were just like, fuck, I don't want to work in a factory. I don't need to. I've got my farm. I've got, you know. They would go in there and destroy your capacity to do that, either through uh, property taxation. So you have to have money. You need currency. How are you going to get currency? Go down to the factory. That's the only way, right? Or sell your land, and then you have no recourse, no ability to support yourself. I mean, this idea that people willingly join capitalism is so fucking wrong, and has always been wrong, whether you're talking about you know, the Fugians that Darwin tried to, uh, Darwin and, and uh, his captain tried to convince to come and join them in England. And they were like, fuck that. We, we're fine here. We got it. 
you know, every sort of interaction you see between the, the whites, the Europeans, the civilized people, and the uncivilized people, the uncivilized people have no interest in joining this program. They have to be forced. They have to be starved out. You have to kill all their fucking buffalo. You have to, whatever it takes to get them to join this ridiculous process that we're in. I don't, sorry, I'm just ranting there. I just, no, no, I, I, why I, am I talking I, about that? Oh, the Cambodia, the trafficking thing. And yeah, it's just, yeah. and it's, it's, one, it's one of the issues. It was kind of weird because I, I spent a whole long chapter documenting all the fraud and the false statistics and so on. And then Newsweek uh, published basically the same story between the time I wrote the chapter and the time the book came out. But but to look at, because the whole anti-trafficking movement really is an anti-prostitution movement, anti-sex worker movement. Right. And you see all these things. Uh, MSNBC has a special about sexual slavery. And the whole thing, there's no sexual slavery in the whole thing. It's all about raiding these massage parlors that are fronts for for sex work for prostitution right and then and then they show all these asian they have their tv camera coming in with the cops and and all these women are running around looking weird and and but it's all under the guise of these people um have been trafficked and tricked and and so and some of that absolutely goes on but they just did the fbi just released a survey um, it wasn't complete because they only had 13 states that were keeping statistics. But of the 13 states in the U.S. that were keeping statistics, I forget, it was over a period of about five years, maybe 2006 to 2011. I don't remember the years exactly. How many cases of, of um, sex trafficking did they discover in these 13 states? 100,000, 10,000? Uh, Twelve. <laughs> so and, and the number fraud. of cases that were brought charging people with trafficking was four. Wow. So this is the epidemic that yeah. is, it, you know is now motivating everybody, and everybody is getting very up in arms. And it, actually, because they say, "Oh my God, uh, prostitution is horrible. Sex work is horrible. What woman in her right mind would choose such a thing?" And all the sex workers who say, "Me." And here I am, I'm working on my master's degree, and uh, I'm not a stupid person. And what makes you, you know, talk about feminism. Yeah. Um, I thought, I, yeah. Get, I get to decide what I want to do with my body, right? Um, you, no. There are things no woman should be allowed to consent to. Yeah. Well, and it all just gets down to power. It, you know, so much of this isn't about sex, even. It's about power. And, you know, you're a woman? No, you're not going to have power. You're not going to decide... You know, birth control. Can, can I decide when I get pregnant? No. I'll decide that, right? Can I decide what if I'm going to have an abortion? No, no. You're going to have to come talk to a man about right. that. You know, it's, yeah, it's... it's and it's incredible. power and then, and sexual. But, you know, one of the things when we're talking about the various definitions of feminism, I and mean, one of the things about empowerment of women was women having the right to their own sexuality separate from pleasing a male partner. Right. Or, you know, pleasing a female partner. But you, I get to have sex on my terms because I like it this way. It makes me feel good to do that. That's a huge empowerment for women. And mm. if you look at societies around the world, in my personal, moral, aesthetic hierarchy of societies I like and societies I don't like, if you have to pick one trait to go by for me it would be how does the society treat their women mm. and societies that um that treat women with respect and and grant them their sexuality 
if you look all around, are progressive in so many other ways, less violent, less abusive. uh, And the men are getting laid more, too. That's the thing I wish men could understand, that you're not going to get laid more by coercing women into playing some silly game with you. You get laid more when women feel free to fuck whomever they want, whenever they want, however they want. That's when everybody gets laid more. You know, it's it's a win-win. Yes. It's amazing. What do you think about um, what's going on in Japan? Do you, you know the, the the what are they called the vegetarian men or the like? I, someone told me recently twenty percent in a recent survey of Japanese young people are just completely disgusted by sex. They oh, want to have nothing to do with it. This. Yeah, it's it's this movement of of men and women in Japan. You know, fifteen to twenty five, I guess. Um, who have just renounced sex? They're not interested. Don't want to have because anything to do with it. Because they're disgusted by it, or just because they're because there is a whole movement of asexuals in this country too. Yeah, of people who want um, that to be recognized as a uh, this is an appropriate sexual orientation. Yeah, no, but that's different than being. That's different. Uh, yeah, no. This uh, the word was either repulsed uh-huh. or disgusted or some some word like that. That they, uh, they're they not just take it or leave it or, yeah, I'm not really interested. They're like, no, keep that away from me. Uh, no, uh, I, I really don't know about what it. The closest thing I, I know about is because uh, so, so, I've been involved with the sex worker rights movement for a long time and reporting on, on that. And um, sex workers in Asia, um, this is going to be all about racial and national stereotypes so i I have to issue with this (laughs) preemptive apologies disclaimer but but so you know ask sex workers in thailand say um and they will tell you that the worst are the japanese um the australians and the germans followed closely by the americans but Mm. but um just in terms of guys who are nasty abuse not not in terms of being kinky uh, but just in terms of res- disrespectful. respecting disrespectful yeah. exactly yeah. and it, it was um, so it, it's always funny because I and yeah I, I, some of my best friends are Japanese Australians <laughs> and Germans it's not it's not to say that anybody you know is from a certain country yeah, is a yeah. bad guy yeah. but but there are cultures that are more um, repressive and more twisted. And, um, you know, I don't. You know more cross culturally than I do. You know, I, people comparing America to Europe. Uh, I work for this Norwegian magazine, and I always yeah. say, "Oh, you guys are so far ahead of us." And my editor says, "No, David, it's quite." the opposite from his point of view yes we are much freer about nudity we don't get all wound up like you americans do about all kinds of things on the other hand you can have sm clubs in san francisco we could never do that um, in the open in oslo hmm. uh, it just would not be accepted uh, there's uh, norway is still has a state religion yeah. you know and and so i think comparing denmark, americans denmark and, and holland are they were hailed all the Netherlands has gone conservative all of a sudden, right? And Spain, well, on Spain immigrant always, rights, not in sexuality. Well, they they started to shut down all the. Um, uh, they shut down the, some of the prostitutes the, in, yeah. in Amsterdam, yeah. and, and the, there's been a conservative upsweep in uh, an anti-prostitution movement in general. Yeah, um, I gather you were there, and I've, I've always wanted to visit Spain or Barcelona. You know, post-Franco, it seemed like there was this total flowering of yeah. beauty, and including you know, yeah. sexual openness in Spain. So, you know, how do you compare who's more open, the United States or 
Uh, the Dalai Lama says the United States is the spiritual leader of the world. What? That's what he said. No, he's full of shit. He, he's all, because the Americans. He was kissing someone's ass. No, he's saying the Americans. Maybe he was trying to get them to <laughs> condemn the Chinese or something. But I think he was saying the Americans have the luxury of of being spiritual um, seekers, mm. whereas most people are caught up in just trying to get through the day, and uh-huh. uh, and that there was a lot about spirituality in the United States that. That was uh, ground cutting. So, yeah, well, there's no question, especially, I mean, you're talking about the 60s, late 60s, early 70s in the West Coast, you know, Esalen. Did you ever go down to Esalen sure. in those days? Yeah. 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 yeah, that, uh, I mean, that that whole scene, and a good friend of mine, uh, have you ever met Stanley Krippner? No. Does that name ring a bell? No. He's, um, he was like the young the youngest guy in the crowd that included people like Aldous Huxley and um, Timothy Leary and, you know, that, that sort of intellectual psycho psychology, but open-minded, you know, cutting edge kind of crowd in San Francisco. Um, And Stanley's in his mid eighties now, and he's a good friend of mine. He's been on the podcast three or four times and he was my sort of mentor in graduate school. Um, I don't know why I'm talking about. Oh, Esalen. Yeah, he was down in Esalen in those days. You probably ran into him. You, you know, I'm sure you guys have crossed paths many times. Yeah, I wasn't on the inside. I mean, I've been to, I've been to Esalen, and in some of the books that came out in the early days from Esalen about sexuality and about Gestalt therapy, which was right. a big thing there, right. uh, were really important to me. And 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 it, it was an erotic place it is well i envy you man i I think one of the defining characteristics of my life is the feeling that i was born like 10 years too late Yeah, you missed that i missed that party but i was born in 62 so and you know you're talking about 69 i was seven eight so i was i was conscious enough to see that people were having a really good time there was a lot of magic in the air there was a you know i just i mean i remember like some of my aunts, my aunt was the youngest member of my mother's, you know, youngest of my mother's siblings. And she was a hippie and she and her husband, we'd go to their place and uh, they had these friends who would come through and, you know, just these, you know, they were hitchhiking or, you know, whatever. And some guy was a leather worker and, you know, and there was just all this sumptuous sexual energy in the air you know and i was old enough to feel it yeah. and know it was there yeah. and see how happy people were and and the music they were listening to and the way they dressed and the way they moved and it was like wow this is great this yeah. i can't wait and then by the time i got there was yeah, fucking was disco bad, i mean yeah. what the hell yeah. Yeah. no it was a power that you know, I was talking about acid and during that time. So we moved to San Francisco and because so much was happening, not only in sexual stuff, but all kinds of stuff. And then we ended up uh, deciding to get out of the city and moving into the Santa Cruz Mountains, which mm. was sort of hippie. And, you know, I was living on no money and raising goats and vegetables and, and stuff like that and hitchhiking up and down the mountains. And everybody was – I'd never been in such a – I was – 69 I was 25 years old and and um you pick up a hitchhiker and it's this woman in flowing gowns or you go to a grateful dead concert and everybody yeah. is in this silky stuff and you just you know i remember on acid actually at a grateful dead concert a long story but in the end um 
we we got back and 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 I just oh my god and and my friend and I just wanted to touch everybody with their silky beautiful colors and and my friend Gary said no David no you can't do that <laughs> you know but it was just oh my goodness this yeah. is this is so I, I I want to live like this. That was it, you know. Light shows, and we went. I, we walked in as tourists. My wife and I come from Washington D.C., and it was the Jefferson Airplane, and it's a beautiful day, and this multi crazy light show and black lights and everybody moving around, and I just never been in such a sexy environment in my life. Yeah, and it was like, oh my god. Yeah, I want I want to live here. Yeah, and so, wow. And when, four months later we moved fantastic <laughs> you know it was like but and then but and then like my one of my partners her kids grew up feeling exactly like what what you were saying like i missed it and i said well listen nobody handed us the 60s you know we had to create the 60s out of the 50s so go create it right go, yeah go but, make it you know but it's also a question of of numbers right there were so many of you that that baby boom first. generation well yeah, right. I, I mean, and in the fifties, you know, the whole beatnik thing, uh, you know, that was happening, and and also acid mushrooms uh, that had a lot to do with the opening of you know the sort of cultural opening. Was opening. Yeah, I know. Hey, I'm, I've done I'm, my part. I, I mean, believe I know me. it. That's exactly I'm what, that's exactly what you, what you're doing, and and you know, it's a little bit different because it. Like we were saying, nowadays, a lot of what we were was so amazing because nobody had ever seen such a thing before. Now, young people grow up, and it's like, yeah, that's right. That's what college is. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's like, yeah, so. Jimi Hendrix. Like everyone's heard Jimi Hendrix by now, but to hear Jimi Hendrix the first For the time, first time, but that must have, or the Beatles, and I mean all that stuff just right. must have been right. spectacular, and to feel like you were part of. Of something that was happening right then, and that's a that's an excitement that I don't think people can understand who who haven't lived it. I mean, I I don't think I can understand it. You know the the feeling, and I, I've often thought this that that well, you know, the balance. There's always it seems like everything always balances out, and um, this late '60s, we often think about all oh, the parties and the music and the art and the, oh, it was so great. But also, a lot of your friends were dying. A right. lot of people you knew right. were right. suffering incredibly. Right. Every night, I can remember Walter Cronkite. You know, today, 722 Americans died in South Vietnam, and you know, 8,000 of the enemy or whatever bullshit numbers they were. Right. You know, it's like every day there was a body count right. leading the CBS News. And then there was an AIDS body count, which is you have a sex-related body right. count to, to kind of take the sheen off of that. Yeah. And that, that, you know, that's absolutely true. Yeah. Um, so. And now, like, people are dying, but we don't see it. They keep it away from us. They, you know, hide, hide you know, in the Bush administration, they wouldn't even let them take pictures of the coffins coming yeah, out, yeah. you know. Um, yeah, so it's it's a strange sort of sanitized situation. I don't know about this thing about America being uh, a beacon of the future because I, I feel like America is is where – I have a friend in Spain. We were talking about this years ago, and he said to me – he said, listen, Chris, I love your country. Don't take this the wrong way, all right? But he said the best thing about your country is also the worst thing about your country, and that is – that Americans have no sense of the ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> he's like, that's why you have these amazing artists, and that's why you know Steve Jobs or whomever thinks they're going to make uh, you know a, new, a machine in their garage that's going to change the world. Yeah, mm-hmm. sometimes they do, mm-hmm. but you also have a lot of fucking lunatics running around doing stupid things because they don't. Yeah. There's not that sort of voice of reason that says, "Hey, that's a dumb idea. Don't do that." Well, I I I, I totally agree. It's funny to hear you say that because my Terry Agamosrud is my editor at Cupido, a wonderful uh, man now in his seventies, and when he said. David, here's what we think of America. We think America is the best and the worst of everything, which is very close to what you just said. I've always thought that was a fantastic quote. And I I agree with that. And I am... A patriot. I, I I'm a patriotic American. I I I love the American experiment. It's cra- It's frontier mentality. I think of this because there's similar things in Australia and South Africa and the places where where it was on the fringes, you know. And mm. and there's this kind of crazy Alaska now, you know. The people in Alaska are a little different from the people elsewhere. And America's mm. like that. It's 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 where people went because they were kind of crazy and the freedom which people talk about i'm a big freedom guy uh, you know i'm willing for people to get hurt in the name of freedom you know for for people young people will make mistakes and they will be hurtful mistakes to them and i think it's important as a parent and i think it's important as a society that we allow that to happen because that's how you how you grow up. I'm kind of with Camille Paglia about about stuff like that, and I, you know you can be on the other side of that, and I wouldn't disrespect you. But just personally, I have this notion, you know, don't tread on me, don't tell me how to do it. I spent my whole time being afraid the state was going to step in and tell me I was raising my son wrong, and no, you must raise your son like this, and they were going to take him away because I was an improper parent. So when CPS comes in and takes away kids because um, they don't like the way their parents are raising them, I'm, I'm, it, it gets me. Although you know, obviously there are some kids who are need need to be rescued in some kind of way but you know this whole free-range parenting thing yeah I, that I, that's the one just drives me nuts yeah, yeah. I, you let your kids walk home from school and you get busted for that yeah. like, excuse me yeah so yeah, i must teach my children yeah. fear which to me is child abuse yeah you know there are bad people out there in the world don't forget it but see that's the american thing that that's that's both. america both you know yeah, <laughs> well, I mean, nobody is arresting parents in Spain for letting their kids walk home from school. Nobody. It would be considered ridiculous, right? That That's what I was saying earlier about this rigidity of Americans' rules and regulations and the police. Just today I tweeted, I was thinking about something. I said the, um, the United States has become so um, adept at occupying countries that They've occupied their own. You know, the police are the enemy here. They see it that way. Normal people see it that way. They're looking to bust you. They're looking. They've got quotas to fill. They've got, you know, they'll they'll seize your property if they can prove, you know, you have some drugs. And it's like there's, um, you know, an incentive. Uh, The police are incentivized to fuck with you here. Mm In a way that, you know, I'm sure there are other countries like Pakistan or someplace where they'll, you know, 
the police are, are well. It's interesting because I, I've always thought that that partly was because of why does a person become a policeman? And there are people who become policemen because they want to defend law and order, and they mm, consider sure. you know good for them, yeah. and they're willing to put themselves in danger to do it. Great. But then there are people who just like beating up on people who right. just like they're just uh, assholes know, who didn't get laid in high school. And, well, and, and yeah. I think a sexual repression right. plays a lot. Takes us so back, now you say yeah. in Spain that doesn't happen. So do, do people become police officers in Spain for a different reason? And, yeah. and all the bullies go do something else. Well, that's know? the thing. In in in, and I don't mean to idealize Spain. You know, people Spanish people listening to this are probably laughing at me. <laughs> um, but you know, I lived there twenty years. So I, I saw quite a bit of Spain. The thing about Spain is, and, and it can change historically very quickly. You talked about Franco, you know, pre-post-Franco. When Franco was the dictator, you didn't want to have a casual conversation with the police, you know? Forget about it. Um, but now police are like regular guys. They're just guys. They're guys. That, yeah, he's got a gun. Yeah, if he, if he needed to, he could fuck you up and ruin your life. But he has no interest in doing that. And if you walk up to a cop on the street, I mean, I remember I was parking my motorcycle in a place and I was, and there were all these motorcycles parked there, but there was a sign saying no parking. And I was like, well, can I or can't I? I'm American. I need to know. And I went, <laughs> I went up to this cop who was standing there and I said, uh, so can I park here or what? And, and he said, no, not officially, but normally nobody will do anything. And I was like, well, thanks. You, you just told me nothing, man. You know, and he laughed. He's like, yeah, I know. That's just the way it is. Like, all right. You know, it was a con- it's a conversation. You know, a cop here, you know, I, I'm afraid to talk to cops here. You know, and I'm white. I'm a white 53-year-old man with, you know, the doctor before my name. If, you know, if the shit hit the fan, I'd probably get out of it. But, I mean, you know, I really feel it. For, for black people and, you know, anyone who doesn't, uh, you know, got dreadlocks or whatever, set them off. Yeah. It's... Well, and I think... Anyway. I, I'm personally... I, I don't want to trace everything back to sexual repression, but I really do believe that a lot of that is a huge yeah. factor of it. I think a, a lot is... The sexuality, the sexual differences uh, between... It, it, Early black people, you know, slaves brought up, people coming out of African cultures brought to the United States compared to the sexual repression of the oh, white Europeans. Yeah. That part, uh, it's not, it's, economics is obviously a huge part yeah. of racism, but sexual fear. I mean, these white um, explorers, you know, got in their boats and ended up in Gold Coast or whatever, they, you know, west coast of Africa, and they got off, or the or the United States, they got they hit and found Native Americans, and all of these people had sexual attitudes that I'm sure we tend to idealize and weren't so perfect, but it probably were a whole lot less repressed than these weird Europeans. Yeah, and the Europeans looked at them and said they are savages yeah. because look at them. Oh my God! If I was like them, who knows what I would do? So, yeah. and you know, God knows what dreams they were having at night. You know about the black women or the Native American women that they were. They, they the mut, mut, mutiny on the bounty. I was just going to ask if you knew about down, that. They went yeah. down there and they all yeah. started fucking the the Polynesian girls, and then <laughs> like, everyone wanted to take nowhere. them back to Britain. And they said, "What are you crazy? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know?" Yeah. So I think that sexual fear and repression is a huge part um and you have to be careful saying that because now you're 
making sexual stereotypes about black people and and all of that. And, uh, but it's not a see. Here's the thing. I, I completely agree with you, but I don't think we need to be that apologetic about it because it's not about black people. It's about African cultures, right? Right. right. And if if a white person were raised in that culture with that sort of sexual freedom being taken for granted. He'd be the same or she'd be the same. Yeah. So it's not that black people are this or that. It's that different parts of the world have different levels of sexual repression. And the most repressed people who have ever lived on the fucking planet are our ancestors. Yeah, it looks like White it. European, uptight. I mean, you probably read that research about some island in, off the coast of Ireland where, like, they kick the dog if he licks his balls because that's disgusting and they have to wear little skirts and stuff. It's like the most insanely sex-negative cultures uh, are European cultures, yeah. uh, you know, particularly and, in those days. And they have a lot of power in the world to impose their views on... Not on coincidentally, people, right? if, you know, if we believe Freud's theory that civilization itself is, you know, repressed sexual energy redirected into this, which makes a lot of sense to me because if you're getting laid pretty much whenever you want, why, why would you go work? What are you going to work for? <laughs> you know, and again, you know, it comes down to really simple things like when Columbus landed in Hispaniola and, you know, looked, these people are fucking fabulous. They, they're generous. They're kind. They're beautiful. There's food everywhere, fish everywhere, fruit. And, you know, these are surely the most beautiful, wonderful people who have ever lived with 50 soldiers. I could enslave them all. That's what he wrote to the, you know, in his di- in his diaries. Like, what kind of mind goes from, ah, oh, this is paradise, to we could really fuck these people up, you know? Right. Yeah. yeah. That's a sick person, right yeah. there. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, uh, shit. I was you, you were talking about something, and I'm going to pause this. You mentioned the the mutiny on the bounty. Uh, just to bring that around, um, are you familiar with the court case? No. With their descendants? No. Oh, this is this is a hell of a thing. So for people who don't know about this, the Mutiny on the Bounty, you've probably heard of the movie or the book. Um, it, when was it? 1700s probably. Yeah, Maybe whaling ships or, or I don't know if they were mapping or what they were doing. But it was um, the HMS Bounty, a British ship. They went into um, uh, uh, an island in the South Pacific, Pitcairn Island, I think it was small island in the South Pacific to uh, make some repairs on the boats and uh, re- get their fresh water supply and get some fruit and meat or whatever. And there were native people there. They spent a couple of months on the island. And it was common for um, the sailors to have sexual relationships with the native um, people on the islands because the native people had a much more relaxed attitude towards sexuality and of course these sailors were very exotic and you know and in fact in some of them i remember there was i think we talked about this in sexaton there was a custom of giving a woman a nail because metal was very valued and they would give them a nail um, in, in exchange for sex. For sex. Uh, and I don't know if that... That's sex work, man. Na- <laughs> I nailed her. Well, it is. Um, but and then there was a problem because <laughs> there were no nails left to hang hammocks from on the, on the ship. Because <laughs> they were all gone. That's good. Um, but anyway, so... Uh, as These David, women go trafficked and obviously were doing this oh, against their will. Victims. And, and, yeah. yeah. Right. I mean, I'm sure there was rape and That's what they're talking cases. about now with the UN people in, in Africa who were trading the... 
the supplies they're supposed to be giving to the kids if the kids would give them blowjobs. And they're saying that this is a horrible thing, and and um, which I suppose if they're supposed to be giving away the supplies for free, it's a horrible thing. On the other hand, the kids were just doing sex work because they uh, yeah. could. Did anyway. you did you happen to read? We'll get back to Pitcairn Island, but did you happen to read um, Paul Thoreau's? Do you know who he is? A travel writer, Paul Thoreau. I, I know his name. He, he wrote um. Well, he wrote The Mosquito Coast that was made into a film and The Great Railway Bazaar. Where he, mainly he's a travel writer, but he wrote a book uh, called My Secret History, which um, is an autobiographical, I mean, he calls it a fictionalized memoir or something, mm-hmm. I guess, to give him cover to lie or misremember. But he talks, he was a Peace Corps volunteer in Burundi, I think. And he talks about... Um, sexual culture there and how he was teaching English and, and, uh, you know, he was raised as a repressed Irish Catholic in Boston. And then he finds himself in Burundi. He said, and he talks about how bizarre it was for him walking along a path and a woman would come along and they'd look at each other and smile and she'd take his hand and lead him into the bushes and they'd fuck and then she'd go on her way and he'd go on his way and never get her name. And it's just like, that's the way it worked. And um, <laughs> my wife, I told you, was raised in Mozambique. And, you know, she says, yeah, of course, that's, you know, it's like people have sex. That's what happens. They dance, they have sex, you know, it's, it's a very, you know, she was raised Indian. So she wasn't really participating in it, but then she was a doctor for seven years in the in the backcountry, and in fact, she studied sexuality with the World Health Organization, so she learned quite a bit about that. Um, anyway, just just so strange how you know we started Sex at Dawn talking about food because I, I wanted people to to wrap their heads around how things that feel natural aren't natural mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. so like you would never eat a dog but lots of people eat dogs every day it's like of course dog you know oh you eat sheep what's wrong with you you know it's like <laughs> and sex is is along with food it's something that's so intimate and feels like our appetites are so um deeply ingrained you right. know that it's it's natural it can't it. possibly be cultural right and yet there it is right Anyway, getting back to Pitcairn Island, um, so there was a mutiny, the, the, this asshole captain, Captain Bly, was mm-hmm. that? Um, they took off, and, and after like two or three days, there was a mutiny, and they set Captain Bly and a few of his uh, loyalists off on a, an open boat, and they didn't kill them. That was their mistake. They didn't kill them. They set them off on this boat in the middle of the South Pacific, and then they went back to the islands and hung out and you know stayed there. Um, meanwhile, Captain Bly and those guys rode their fucking boat or sailed it or whatever to Australia and then went back to England, reported what happened, and then the British sent uh, military ships down there. And um, by the time they got there, most of the men were dead because they had turned against each other. And, oh. Yeah. Um, but now here's, here's where it gets See interesting. See what happens when you become a pervert? Yeah. <laughs> <That's right>. <laughs> <laughs> Serves them right. God punish them. <laughs> so now... Uh, you know, centuries later, their descendants are still living there. And it's being ruled by New Zealand. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, not politically controlled by New Zealand. But it's a completely different culture, of course. 
And what happened was some of the people were in New Zealand and somebody mentioned that she had been initiated into sex by an older man. And, you know, it's one of these situations where it was a conversation and someone heard it and they reported it. And next thing you know, they send police from New Zealand to pick Heron Island. And it turns out that a lot of women in when they're teenagers or girls, when they are becoming women, their first sexual experience is with an older man who initiates them into the world of sex. And this is the way it's done on the island. So through New Zealand eyes, that's rape, right? So they, they um, grab all these guys, take them back to New Zealand, put them on trial. Meanwhile, all these women go to testify in the trial, and every one of the women says, it wasn't rape. That's how we do it. Nobody raped me. That's what we do. And so it's this classic clash of cultures, yeah. right? Yeah. Where like, you call it rape, we don't. And we were the ones who were fucking. So don't we get to decide here? Yeah. You know, yeah. but no, unfortunately. Uh, well, then you then you get into all the, you know, cultural imperialism and all that and um, clitorectomies. Yeah. Uh, you know, no. that's complicated, right? Well, what do you think about circumcision? You, you, call, you call clitorectomy genital mutilation. Yeah. This is how we do it. Right. 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 And who, who is it who most defends clitorectomies in the countries that do it? The, the adult women. This is how, this is what you do in service to your daughter. Now, to me, this is horrible. Yeah. And then, and then I, you know, I don't know what I do with that. You know, it, it's like, I'm glad I don't have to decide. <laughs> yeah. It's not, glad it's not up to me. Yeah. But it's like, because yeah. I'm a Western feminist, therefore I get right. to say what you in East Africa get to do. I, I, I don't know if that's appropriate or not. You well, know? certainly if they come, if they're immigrants, if there's someone in this country or in Britain sure, or whatever. Then you who get does to say, it? if you're going to come to our country, you've got to buy, play by our rules. Right. Okay. But, you know, but it's our, our um, Middle Eastern um, cultures, you know, um, Arabic cultures um, in terms of the women's roles and all of, all of this. Uh, Afghanistan, I mean, you know, it's like if the women, if, if the indigenous women are rising up and saying, hey, we don't like, you know, maybe people like this for the last thousand years, but we don't like it anymore and we want to change this. That's one thing. And then for people to come in from the outside, it's, and I, you know, I don't know because to me, is it offensive to me? Yes, it's absolutely offensive to me. But if I get to tell them that they have to do what, then don't, you know, I don't want um, Al-Qaeda coming in and telling me um, yeah. whether I can uh, be sexual <laughs> in the way I like to because they don't like it, yeah. you know. Or, well, they're trying to impose Sharia law in Kansas, you know. Yeah, I do know that. Yeah. I'm really Got to watch out for I that. I yeah. Know. I want to see people, uh, corn farmers in, in burkas. Yeah. Good. What are you, are you, are you circumcised? I am circumcised, and I had my son circumcised when he was born. This was in 1971. It's a great thing about this podcast. I ask my guests if they're circumcised. It should have opened with that, right? <laughs> it's good thing we're not on TV. <laughs> yeah. it, get it all on the table, so to speak. Yeah, no, I, I, I was raised uh, not religiously Jewish. My parents were communist atheists. and Oh, really? Um, but I was raised jewish enough that i was circumcised um you know as a lot of americans were at that time and and when my son was circumcised 
I, I, I thought I did think about it. But I didn't think about it a lot. I thought about it and decided that if he wasn't circumcised, he would be different from everybody else. Mm. This is 1971. I don't even know if that was true, but it, I imagined it was true. And I thought it would be embarrassing to him. And at that time, I didn't fully understand the consequences of being circumcised. I've always thought of it. So you regret that? Yeah, I do. Um, What do you think? This is another conundrum, you know, for me. I I don't, I'm circumcised. And I'm aware of the debate. And, you know, some people are horribly outraged and consider it genital mutilation. And, um, but the main argument that I've heard is that it removes sensitive tissue and therefore um, reduces pleasure. I can't imagine there being more pleasure involved. <laughs> well, so just, I, I do just think there's the an limits upper. of your imagination, Chris. <laughs> no, no, I don't you think, think it's this is sexual pleasure. Let me tell you, there are worlds that you have never even imagined. I'm sure there are. I'm sure there are. You only opened your mind. In that but way. but see, I don't think it's about <laughs> imagination. I think it's about sensation. I think there's a certain amount of bandwidth mm-hmm. of pleasure sensation, and you know, I remember being 15, 16, whatever. Um, not enough sensation was not the problem. Yeah, right. If you had more <laughs> sensation. Well, there is that. My head would have exploded. Is more always better, right? Yeah. And, and right. maybe this is the origin. I don't know. The origin of the circumcision may have been to control sexual desire to some extent because otherwise it just was too much to handle. Well, I don't you know, think premature don't, ejaculation was necessarily... I mean, I don't think... It wouldn't have been like, you know, I would have had like a stroke or something. I just would have come and... A nanosecond. Well, so maybe, and maybe people discovered that sex was more desirable when you didn't come in a nanosecond, so it was a good reason to get circumcised. Yeah, but that presumes that anyone gave a shit about women's rights and women's pleasure no, not women. back uh, in the medieval men's ple- time. Men's pleasure. Oh, just to you make know, it last longer? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it could be. Who knows? I, I don't it know. Could be. I don't know who, in, who thought of this. Yeah, I know. That's a good Shmuel. question. Because they thought I of have it an all idea. over the Today, world. Today, here's what we're going to do. Well, but that's and the thing. It, it isn't a habit or, or a custom that started in one place and spread. Oh, is it common? It's everywhere. In, in Papua New Guinea and oh, Africa and okay. some okay. South American tribes. Yeah, there are all yeah. sorts of genital mutilations right. and, and, you know, circumcision being the main one. Um, so it's it, there, there must be some some biological impetus toward that. But yeah, anyway. And, but, I, and then there are all the cultures that don't do that, right? So it's not like, yeah. it's not like incest where every culture does it. It's... it's I, I, you know, I, I don't know. I always thought it was, you know, kind, kind of like more is better, and um, I, I, you know, I, I kind of wonder what my life would be like if I wasn't circumcised. Mm. And I, I, I'm doing okay. I'll tell you one thing that uh, the the one problem I've had from being circumcised is that I didn't learn to jerk off till I was 15, because. And, and it's weird that, that this is the way it's depicted in America, but, you know, it's depicted just grab your dick and, you know, do that, you know, stroke, jerk off and you come. But if you're circumcised, you don't have enough, like, skin to, there's not that wiggle room. You need lube. And it never occurred to me to use lube until I was 15. When I read the National Lampoon, you remember National mm-hmm. Lampoon, the Harvard yeah. thing? There was some story about some, uh, I don't want to get into this too much, but um, <laughs> it involves mayonnaise. <laughs> <laughs> Egg salad sandwiches have never been the same. 
But uh, yeah, that that was the one big inconvenience uh, for me. That well, you know, it's interesting because I didn't know about lube either, but it didn't. Oh, you didn't need it. Stop me, really? Yeah, it just but hurt I like hell. No, I I mean, don't, I, but I don't. I, you know, I don't really. I, everybody seems to remember the first time they ejaculated. I I don't. I don't have the slightest uh, idea how I did it. I, I remember I used to rub against the side of my bed. Uh, uh, no, I had wet dreams for a few uh-huh. years before yeah. I figured out how to jerk yeah. off, which was amazing. Have you had a wet dream? Not very often, <sighs> actually. Wow. I I mean, I don't remember the first one, but like the intense dreams, uh-huh. you know, uh-huh. like, wow. I guess women have orgasms in dreams sometimes. That must be nice. I, I I know. I mean, friends of mine, they, the women who have orgasms everywhere at the gym, you know, riding the bike machines, mm-hmm. and oh my god. Anyway, we're getting we're getting way off the topic <laughs> here. What is? <laughs> <laughs> Before I tell any more jerking off stories, let's kill this baby. Um, so the book is Let me, yeah. Let's at least yeah. Let's sell this book now. Had it. This thing we call sex: a radically sensible look at sex in America, and I blurbed it. And I'll tell you, I blurb very few books these days, so people don't write to me for blurbs. But after knowing your work for so long, I was happy to have my name on there. And uh, and I really liked the stuff you sent me, too. I, I, was, I was struck not just by the breadth of the things you talked about, but your, your sincerity and, uh, and kindness of your tone. It was really – it was a beautiful – Beautiful. Uh, you feel like you're talking to a friend there. Well, thanks. So I, I, mean, I, I, mean, I try to mix it up. I mean, sometimes I get really analytical, but sometimes I'm just telling a good story. So yeah. a lot of what's in this book is personal stuff, which I didn't entirely realize because when I looked back over the columns I had written over a 15-year period for the ones that were relevant still, the stories tended to stand out more often than the topical stuff because a lot of the topical stuff had changed. So it's a mix. It's got whole sections that are talking about large issues, but it's also just got a whole bunch of uh, both personal tales and general uh, fun, a lot of them kind of fun stories. And, yeah. I mean, it's kind of a funny thing. I mean, I think in one sense, sex is so serious, right? I talked about telling my son, this is serious business. On the other hand, people take sex way too seriously, (laughs) (laughs) you know, at the same time. And when I'm photographing people, when they're laughing, I just photographed a couple day before yesterday, with three people actually, day before yesterday. And they're all doing stuff. They're into a fair amount of kinky stuff. So they're slapping each other and biting each other and stuff. But they're laughing and they're just having a grand old time. And uh, so I try to both be serious and not serious, um, which I don't see as a contradiction. Well, that's, that's what I was going to say. You know, I have hung out. I, I'm, I'm not into S&M myself um, uh, or really any hardcore kinky behavior, but I've spent time in those communities. And it's so different from what people think. It's so – because looking in from outside, you imagine all this sort of – you know, nastiness and power plays and uh, there's there's like a snarl to it all. But when you're in that community, you see how people are so um, respectful and concerned with that everybody's comfortable there. Everybody's within their limits. Everybody works out what the rules are, what the safe words are, what's okay, what's not okay. That actually it's a much more 
respectful and safe environment than just you know meeting someone yes. at a bar and going home and fucking and conscious and communicative that was what yeah. drew me to the sm community when i was first learning about it which is actually through a book called coming to power which was a a book by SM lesbians written for other SM lesbians uh, back in the, during the lesbian sex wars. And I, I started reading about this stuff, and I said, boy, this sounds weird. And I got, I got fairly well into it for a while in my life, and now less so. I just kind of kind of not. But it's exactly what you said. And a woman that I interviewed at one time who worked as a pro-dom, and, um, and one of the things that she said was, she said, SM is like, it's like stained glass windows. When you're inside the church and you look at a stained glass window, it's really beautiful. But if you're standing outside the church and you're looking at a stained glass window, it just looks like this wow, gray that's a thing. great line. And it, it was just like, it is so much. And I, that's true for SM, but it could be true for, for anything. You yeah. know, if you're a heterosexual person and you're looking at uh, gay men or lesbians and, you know, I don't get it, you know, it's like, well, you know, you, of course you don't get it because you don't, you're outside of it. Yeah. So, and it does look, and, and, you know, people see abuse, you know, I, I just did a, a slideshow and talk last night in Seattle about photos I'd taken at kink.com where I was uh, yeah. photographing one of their, some of their filmings and they're constantly being criticized for what they, producing what somebody called torture porn in the SF Weekly. And you can under, and you know, everybody who was came to this talk were kinky people, and they were laughing. And I said, "Well, you know, you can understand. You look at it, and somebody um, beats on somebody, or be, and if you're into it, pretty heavy beats on them until they're bleeding or whatever." And he says, "Looks like abuse to me." And said, "Well, it, yes, you can understand how it would look like abuse to you, but." come and watch it in practice and you'll see what exactly what you just talked about yeah. the tenderness in it and the awareness and the consciousness and paying attention to what's really going on for the other person because you have to you can't just kind of wing it or, yeah. or bad stuff will and also the you know getting back to the sex tra- sex traffic versus sex worker uh, dynamic you also have to look at it from within the perspective of the participants and so even if even if you go to kink.com, you know, to the dungeon and you watch somebody getting whipped and, you know, hanging from the rafters and it still might look like abuse to you. But but that person chose to be there and that person is happy she she or he is there. And afterwards, they'll talk about what a great time they had. And who are you to tell them they didn't? I've got a friend and I, I want to be careful because uh, I think people listening to the podcast might know who this person is, but keep it very general uh, she's got a uh chronic pain condition that she's going to have her whole life and it's pretty serious involves lots of um surgery uh and uh life-threatening surgeries and at a certain point she learned to eroticize pain mm-hmm. and because she knew that she would either be on painkillers her whole life and probably kill herself because it's there's very little they can do. Um, or she found a way to eroticize pain. Now, she's really into s and to, to an extent that makes me uncomfortable. But it means survival for her, mm-hmm. right? And if you don't know her story, there's no way to know that. There's no way to know what's actually happening with her, you yeah. know? Um, 
but that's that's what's that's what it is and so i always feel like you know when you're looking at something from outside like that it's not just it looks different when you're in the community but what's going on in that person's head is beyond your comprehension yeah yeah sometimes i think you really cannot tell i've been at sm play parties where i thought i was pretty aware at this point and i would see things and i would say boy i don't know about this one this i she says she's into this, but I don't. I don't know. And and certainly there are people within the SM community that are crossing red lines, and bad stuff happens. Bad stuff happens everywhere, right? And sometimes you can see it, but sometimes even when when you would like flinch, you know, somebody's doing something. Uh, say somebody's doing cuttings, yeah, you know, cutting and piercing, like and then you look at the at the face of the person who's receiving yeah. this, and there's no two ways about it. This person is ecstatic. Yeah, you know, it is even if the person is yelling because it's something that involves, you know, that kind of pain, and then and then you just look at their face and they are glowing. They are just glowing, and then afterwards. You know, what was that like? Oh, my God. You know, I, I can barely talk now because I'm still coming down from it. So sometimes if you're not walking in with such a bias that you just can't see what's in front of you, no, sometimes it's it's unmistakable. It's it's beautiful. And it, at least it's been – I've had so many experiences like that. I mean, so many, a dozen experiences like that. And it's just like, okay, David, you know, broaden – you, you got to – broaden your construct here because um there's no quite i went to swingers uh, talk about this in this thing we call sec i went to a swingers party uh, early early on when i discovered swingers and um i had this experience where i walked into a room there was this woman and this man they were being sexual and they were in a room where if you're in that room it meant you're inviting other people to join you and it, it was hard for me to believe that this was true. And I was standing on the edges, and the guy looked up and kind of waved at me, waved me over to come join them. And I said, okay. And I joined them, and then this woman kind of welcomed me, and then the three of us were playing for a while. And then a couple minutes later, he had kind of backed off to the side. And I thought, well, wait a second. I didn't mean to, to am I being rude? Am I taking over? Is this? <laughs> and I said, well... I'm going to assume that this is okay because yeah. it, I don't, it doesn't feel wrong. She seems happy. He doesn't seem unhappy. He's just, but he's just kind of being. I said, "All right," and, and we and this woman and I had this amazing sexual connection. And um, and then afterwards, she went to the bathroom, and he came up to me and said, "Oh, thank you so much. I've been this has been my fantasy forever was to watch her being sexual with somebody else. I finally talked her into coming to a party, and I'm glad we met you because you were so sweet." And and she came back and said, "Thank you," and it was all fine and and i walked away and i never had another conversation with her i never wanted to have another conversation with her i never wanted to have sex with her but i will defend it to this day we had intensely personal intimate sex even though we had not said a word to each other i still have no idea what her name was that changed i had to change my whole construct of intimacy how can you have intimacy with a stranger like that uh, you're talking about walking down the road in Burundi. You know, I mean, I, how can that be other than just superficial, cold, distant sex? Well, let me tell you, this was not. This was, I, I was as close with her, paying as minute attention to her and feeling our psychic connection with each other as strongly as any partner I've had for, for 10 years, you know. And, oh, my God, I didn't know that was possible. Well, guess what? Your theory, when theory conflicts with data you got to change the theory 
you know, which we generally do, except when it comes to sex, when we decide if the theory mixes with the data, well, then um, the data's got to throw out the data because the theory takes precedence anyway. Yeah. So, so and and I and I love sex for that. It's like it's the coyote, it's the trickster. Just when you think you've got it all figured out, it flips you over on your head and says, "Nah, you thought you knew." You thought you knew who you were. You thought you knew what this sex thing was all about. Well, how do you how do you account for this wise guy? And then there are people who are frightened by that, but I I love it because I like irony and I like surprises and uh, uh, and I, I I see sex as being that place. So. I could talk to you all day, but that is a really good place to end, I think. <laughs> that, that was a great statement of who you are and what you believe. So thank you so much for doing this. Well, thank you. It's a joy yeah. talking with you. Yeah, it's nice being out here in the park. Yeah, beautiful outside. Um, so we've got the book. This is available on Amazon, on your site. Sec, it's a, my website, let me say, is uh, www.davidsteinberg.us, not Dot com david steinberg.us you can order the book there my writings all my writings are there my photography of couples and the other photography i do it's all on the website if you're curious oh cool um you can also get it from amazon cheaper but not signed by me so take your pick oh they sign copies from well, you? people buy nice. it for me nice. then then again and i've got other books erotic by nature divas of san francisco the erotic impulse um, oh, I've got the erotic impulse. Yeah, it's a, a yeah. collection that I edited together for Jeremy Torture. Um, uh, okay, uh, I've got that in a, Spain. A new, a new consciousness reader. Um, uh, so, and all those books are available on my website. Some of them are available on, on Amazon as well. Great. All right. Cool. Thank you. Great. All right. I hope you enjoyed that <clears throat> conversation with David Steinberg. Check out his work when you can. Thanks to Carsey Blanton, as always. You're going to hear her great song, Smoke Alarm, a special acoustic version she recorded just for this show, sitting, I believe, in her backyard or maybe her bedroom, but you can hear the windows are all open. There are birds singing down in New Orleans. So if she happens to come through the town you're in, make sure you go see her because it's going to be like those people who saw the talking heads back before they were famous. That's I think she's amazing and she's going to be really big someday. She's already pretty damn big, but you can still see her in small clubs if you're lucky. She's touring around. Check her out carsyblanton.com and Shore Design t-shirts as always. Check out Shore Design t-shirts. They've got hundreds of styles and they're all made from that super soft tie cotton no one knows how they do it duncan trussell thinks it involves tie pubic hair but nobody's really sure um anyhow sure design t-shirts they're great use the checkout code sex at dawn all one word sex at dawn and you'll get an additional 10 percent off your entire order here's smoke alarm carsey blanton he said baby what's a big deal Feel what you want to feel Say what you want to say You're gonna die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet 
to the ground. 